0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame. I'm one half of the show, joined, as always, by Matt Feuerstein, the other half of the show. Although, Matt, I guess sometimes when we have a guest, technically we then each fall to one-third of the show for those episodes.
1: And really, in every other episode, you are uh, two-thirds of the show. So, no. So I um – um but i'm happy to be a third it's really the the highest fraction i've ever been <laughs> for, so uh, thank you for, for allowing you
0: him. but uh yeah this is a big episode of the show i've been this is one of those episodes that from when you asked me you know should we, how about we do this podcast this is one of those shows i had like circled in my mental calendar of like oh this will be one to do and um some other big things going on for us, because while we are still on the Pro Wrestling Only Network, which I guess we, we'll talk about in a second, we still are, and how great are, they are, and we'll plug them, but um we also now have our own podcast feed, because some of you people, even though we tell you time and time again how many great, episodes, great podcasts past and present are on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, some people, you know, I realize they just... For purposes of sorting or whatever, they like having they they want us in its own feed. So Matt, you have gone and done the work. Tell them about we now have our own separate through the years podcast feed.
1: Yes, and I um I sympathized with everybody who was uh, making the uh, the comments over the past couple of years that um you wanted to be able to download the old episodes um, because you know you want to just share these episodes with your children. With your grandchildren, <laughs> your uh, your step son, whenever you have him, if you don't already, um, you know, just all, all these people, um, and it, it was harder. You know, we all had our episodes on SoundCloud. Thank you to everybody at the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, uh, Kelly, Chad, Charles, John, everybody who's um, Travis, whoever has helped out over time. Um, but um, and it's it's great, and we're still on it, and we are proud members. But. Um, I uh, I thought that it was important to have this go to feed that you could just go directly find any episode very quickly download it to whatever device you want. So I have thankfully made that happen. You can find the podcast now in the f- end of feed on all of your favorite uh, podcast related apps. You can um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Dogcatcher. Um, you can find it on Stitcher. Um, you know you can f- you know Spotify as always. Um, if there's any podcast-related service that you use, in which you cannot find through the years, and including all of our archived episodes, um, please let me know, and I'll do what I can. I'm even um, uploading uh, every episode. It'll take this one. will take a little bit longer, but eventually, all of the episodes will be up on our YouTube channel. Um, that's. I, I noticed guess, that. Yeah, I guess that's more for um, for us to promote the show as opposed to convenience for you but some people do like listening to podcasts on youtube so it will be there eventually they're already a couple episodes up but all the episodes are up on all these other platforms um so please enjoy Uh, it also allows us to uh, put out the episodes pretty much as soon as we're done recording them so that's uh that's a bonus as well um so hopefully when you hear this episode uh it will be uh well, for those of you who are really on top of things, it will be the night that we recorded it. So, um, you know, just a, a level of control and stuff, but uh I I uh, I hope uh, I hope you all enjoy the the archives and the uh, hopefully convenience of having this all
0: in one place. And I again, I just want to make clear like if you guys don't check out the Pro Wrestling Only podcast feed, like especially I don't know how every app works, but like you might have to go like search on Google for the Pro Wrestling Sound Club, but not only is there still great podcasts going there today, like you are missing out. Like there is just probably literally thousands of hours of incredible shows. Like we were listeners of that network before we were on the network, so there are so much good stuff there. And, um,
1: and one one of the things about the Pro Wrestling Only podcast network and why they came to us and uh, why we were happy to be a part of it and we I feel like we're a good fit is that. They have a lot of cool niche programming involving wrestling. It's not just your basic like. Not that there's anything wrong with this, but it's not just your basic. You know, here's what happened on Raw this week. Here's what happened in New Japan last week. AEW, whatever. Like they go deep. They have a lot of stuff about the past. They have a lot of stuff about you know promotions that you don't hear too much about. You know, like the you know podcasts that go way back to into the seventies, into the eighties. And you know, unlike some of the popular podcasts, it's not just like oh, let's review uh the pay-per-view that happened this month uh 25 years ago like no they're, they're talking about random syndicated shows they're talking about uh old uh, japanese tours and cars uh, and cards just all sorts of different um niche programming um you know there a lot of great podcasts i believe um i'll edit this out if i'm wrong but between the sheets <laughs> started on this podcast network right yes it did yes uh, I so so it's like that that sort of vibe there so it's it's a great network if you if you're not just interested in the most mainstream of mainstream wrestling or if you're not interested in the most current stuff you want to hear about quirky things and oddball things and just things that maybe are half lost to history if not for the great historians that uh, that populate the pro wrestling only podcast network
0: And the one other thing I just want to make clear, even though I think it's, you know, I think most people probably aren't going to assume different, but just in case, um, all this is doing is we're adding new feats. Like we're not charging money, or or you know, through the years we've never charged money, we never will. You know, nothing's changing except we're just making it giving you more options for how to listen. Like the only thing we'll ever ask of you is, you know, if on say your Apple podcast or whatever your favorite. uh, podcast, you know, host, if, if you want to give it a review, you know, if, if you like the show that much, that I'm sure that, that probably helps in some weird algorithm way. Oh, yeah. And, subs- be-
1: and subscribe. <laughs> now that yeah, you can exactly. do that, subscribe directly to our show. That would be fun to have subscribers.
0: Exactly. But like, you know, we're so- not asking anything. of you. not know if there's ro- anything wrong with that. You know, this is just, we're not changing anything up. It'll be the same podcast. It's just more options for how to listen for people that have been asking for it. So,
1: yeah. And I think the, ma- the main benefit of this to me is that you can find the old episodes and download them and listen to them however you want, like in a, in a very convenient way. Um, the new episodes, you know, the, the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network is st- still going to have them up um, as we as we do them. So, And so if you're subscribed to that, you're going to get the episodes. So don't feel any pressure to yeah. subscribe to our channel. But if you like us and just like us to have um, higher numbers, go ahead and do that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, much like Burger King, you can now have it your way. Uh, I, I lied earlier. We do have sponsors now. It, we are contractually mandated every 10 minutes to plug Burger King. So <laughs> expect that to happen a lot over the course of this episode. Normally, but, um, bur- normally
1: it's Burger King that just plugs me up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hey-oh. Um, we only have a little bit of news that between the last show and this show, even though it was like a month between shows, but a couple of things. The first is just a very minor thing, but it kind of – it annoys me, but like not in a serious, angry way, but just a fun way, which was one of the first ROH mysteries, as I occasionally dub them, you know, things that we discovered that often never get solved, such as when I tweeted to Spanky what was in his Wendy's order on the first Rig of Honor show and he never responded to me. Or when I tweeted to Samoa Joe recently, did he ever actually go tweeting, I mean, uh, trick or treating with Jushin Liger like he said he would in his live journal? I hope he goes Again, tweet. I hope he response- goes tweeting with him. <laughs> and um, – but one of the other early Ring of Honor mysteries was uh, – did uh, – there I believe it was Honor Invades Boston, one of the t- first – I think that was made the sixth show Ring of Honor had ever done. There's a uh, amazing Red versus Quiet Storm match and Quiet Storm actually does a running Canadian Destroyer. And this predated P.D. Williams and I always was wondering like um, – I asked and no one really – gave a big answer but like did did quiet storm actually invent the canadian destroyer and no one's just really noticed or remember that so matt when i was reading the observers for this period of time for the tonight's episode um there was something where i i I didn't see exactly the context but um there was some section that where they were basically talking dave was talking about like you know this hot move the canadian destroyer and pd williams invented it and i guess uh, a couple weeks later he published a a correction and i'll just read it here Regarding PD Williams and the Canadian Destroyer move, Amazing Red actually did a running version of the move on a 2002 Ring of Honor show. Matt, this is how little respect and how cursed Quiet Storm is. Um, he the, the correction still leaves him out because he did it to Amazing Red in that match, not the other way around. He doesn't even get mentioned by name in the correction, and I just felt like I felt bad for Quiet Storm. I reading that, I was just like, oh man, like you just Destiny does not want you to be known as the guy who invented this move because apparently – I mean according to Dave, he thinks that – from reading that section, he clearly thinks then someone told him, no, like that's the first time this move ever happened. But even then somehow Amazing Red got credit for it.
1: You know, it's a good thing that we have social media now because in in the recent years I've seen Quiet Storm – tweet about how he did it first so at least now he has the ability to advocate for himself instead of having to be at the uh, the you know the behest of these dang dirt sheets
0: <laughs> and, and, Let, let's, know, become, is... let's
1: become one of those podcasts that talks crap about dirt sheets they're very popular <laughs> matt,
0: <laughs> matt nothing will stop us then like we subscriptions would go through the i mean we're doing fine with listeners right now but man we would be yeah millions we would be rich but uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, nothing against Quiet Storm's career, like, I don't want to denigrate him, but, like, that's probably, you know, if he was more well-known for doing that, that's probably, like, the thing that would be, like, a huge part of his legacy. Like, he's still wrestling in places like pro-wrestling Noah and stuff, but, you know, Canadian Destroyer is a move that's still done to this day. I mean, it's become kind of, like, the go-to move for people that are 50 and over in wrestling to show, like, hey, I'm still with it, I can do what the kids do, you see, like... Ricky Morton and Dustin Rhodes doing the Canadian Destroyer and the Code Red and stuff like that now. What does that and What does that
1: tell you about that move? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, that's very physically draining, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it was one for a few years. It was like the it move, and it, it, I just I feel bad for Quiet Storm that he does not. It's not as widely known that from from everything I can tell, you know, there's always a chance there could be an earlier example, or but. The best I can tell, no one's ever corrected me on this. He was the first guy to ever do that move, so.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, uh, um, I, uh, let's, I think we should do a whole special episode just about Quiet Storm. <laughs> For free, because uh, we don't charge.
0: Yeah, n- n- no Patreon exclusive, no. you know, even though, again, we're leaving a lot of money on the table, but. We know he, the guy, um, the
1: guy needs to get his due, and we're the ones to give it to him.
0: <laughs> um. We have one other story. This is a much, more, a much more directly affecting Ring of Honor and a bigger story. have a couple quotes from a couple different newsletters. We'll go first to The Observer in their WWE news section from an issue around this time. Dave writes, Ricky Steamboat was at TV in both Buffalo and Rochester. Both sides have agreed to a three-week tryout. If both he and WWE are happy with the f- results at that time, they'll attempt to work out a financial deal. If he does work full-time, it would be every weekend, so he'd be out of Ring of Honor. However, he would be allowed to get some weekends off to work with Harley Race and Les Thatcher on seminars and wrestling camps. He's getting a three-week tryout as an agent. Those who have worked with him in Ring of Honor in that role couldn't praise him enough when it comes to his ability to see the smallest details in a match that make a difference and to teach young wrestlers. In that sense, he was compared with Jim Cornette and Paul Heyman from those who have worked with both. Steamboat and the company have had their negative history, including lawsuits and bad blood over the final time he left. Steamboat has a lot of non-wrestling business things going on, and taking this job because of the travel would mean he'd likely have to give that up. And then we'll go to like a week or two later, the trial's done, and the Pro Wrestling Torch reported – Ricky Steamboat signed a contract with the WWE to be a full-time road agent, which means he'll be working closely with wrestlers at events on the content of their matches, especially the finishes. Steamboat, besides working for the Ring of Honor for Ring of Honor occasionally this year, was part owner of R&D Auto and Marine Specialists. He sold his share of that business in order to move on to the WWE. Besides his wealth of experience from his in-ring career, he will, bring both the per- w- he will bring with him the perspective of having been involved in both TNA and Ring of Honor over the past couple of years. No other road agents in WWE have the fresh, first-hand experience of working else- elsewhere recently. Given that Ring of Honor is considered the state of the art in terms of progressing the in-ring style in this country, Steamboat could bring that perspective with him. And it may benefit some of the stagnant wrestlers in WWE. The original decision to bring Steamboat in was John Laurinaitis's call. Yet another move by Laurinaitis to surround himself with people he hired rather than holdovers from the previous, previous regime. Steve Kerr, the previous agent hired before Steamboat, was also a Laurinaitis hire. So, um, Matt, I have more uh, quotes from different people and comments on the about steamboat on the next show final battle because that's his final show with ring of honor so we can we can sum up ricky steamboat's run in ring of honor more next episode but this was this period here was basically this is the events that ended his ring of honor time and uh yeah i don't know what if you have any thoughts of that i mean what you know he he definitely had a uh I know a lot of the guys there seen, spoke really highly. Like in researching this episode, I was rewatching some of the old CM Punk Samoa Joe shoot interview, and CM Punk goes out of his way to say that like he learned a lot from Ricky Steamboat in the less than a year he was in Ring of Honor.
1: Yeah, I mean I, everyone says they learned a lot from Ricky Steamboat, and I also thought his um, his on camera performances. You know, he wasn't the best promo in the world, but he sort of got to flex his promo muscles a little bit more than he had pretty much did at any other time. Uh, in uh, his, at least his modern day career, you know, more than he ever did in WWF and more than he did in a lot of the, a lot of his periods in WCW, just in terms of like playing different characters, getting to be like almost vaguely heelish at different points um, with Foley, um, you know, getting, you know, and he he just got a lot of chances to talk and do stuff and, you know, he wasn't a great promo even, even at that point, but he, uh, he added a lot, I think, of, uh, gravitas to, uh, to different situations that he was in. And like you said, backstage, everyone thinks that he was extremely helpful. And the wrestling and Ring of Honor, you know, all those guys did continue to improve that year. Um, and I'm sure if they say that Steamboat was a big part of it, it certainly seems plausible to me. Um, when we get to the main event tonight, we're going to talk about a big spot that both Joe and Punk give him credit for that I thought was very effective. Um, and um yeah it's it's interesting you know to if you go back and watch WWE from 2004 to 2005 to see if there were any differences um but i'm sure that steamboat being in the D, in the WWE locker room was nothing but a benefit to the uh to the guys that were there and yeah. uh, you know also the time was right i mean he he did, it's not like steamboat being in ring of honor for much longer would have really done much for him or for them you know he was it was a it was a pretty decently long run you know he wasn't there all the time but he, he made a decent amount of shows and i think uh his uh his time was up there so it was good for him to move on to bigger uh to bigger things
0: yeah i mean it's certainly on camera maybe off camera he could have had longer but then you know how financially viable is that for both steamboat and ring of honor if he's not doing stuff on camera but yeah, yeah.
1: ring of honor didn't really employ like producers agents. or agents yeah
0: yeah which is part of the reason why, probably why a guy like that's so valuable, where you're hiring him to show up for on camera stuff, but he can basically be kind of like an unpaid agent you know if he if he's interested in doing it, you know I'm sure a lot of these guys they come in and they probably had no interest and they weren't asked to, but a guy like Steamboat that just seemed to care you know and be interested obviously helped guys a great deal, but um And that brings us to the show, the second-last show he was on. This is one of the biggest Ring of Honor shows we've covered. I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately, but this was a huge run of Ring of Honor shows at this point in their history. And we get to Ring of Honor All-Star Extravaganza 2. It took place December 4th, 2004, at the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of 750 fans. Just um,
1: just goes to show how important some of these outside talents are. That this show would have you know significantly fewer people than the last show, even though on paper the lineup is about as built up and star studded by ROH fit, you know guy standards as you could you can imagine at that point. And the biggest and most built and hyped up main event they've ever had.
0: Yeah, um, Mike Johnson. I'll get to it in just a second. He made a uh, point. Very similar to what you just made, Matt. Um, but I think we mentioned this on the last show, but Mike Johnson – this this is also a weird, t- a weird like little thing for Ring of Honor at this period where at this point they toured between a handful of cities. But this was actually like – so usually they rotated, but this was – their last show was at the Rexplex, you know, Weekend of Thunder Night 2. And then they came back one month later. Their very next show was at the Rexplex again. And Yeah, in fact,
1: also noteworthy that they were just completely off for a month.
0: Yeah. And um, we mentioned this, I believe, on the last show, but, you know, the the Mick Foley promo that's right before an intermission with CM Punk on the last show, that's where they announced that there's going to be Punk Joe 3 at this show. And we mentioned that uh, Mike Johnson was at that show. He said that – um, I believe they said they uh, set um, – yes, let me just read the quote. The promotion again broke its advanced ticket sales for the show when they went on sale. So – at least – obviously, even though they didn't come close to uh, hitting the Liger Night 2 um, ticket sales, at least the people in the building, like the core fans, were really excited hearing that you know a month later they were going to get Punk Joe 3. But like you mentioned, Matt, I'll read a different Mike Johnson quote from his coverage of this show. The Elizabeth show drew between 550 and 650, which was down from the 1,000 to 1,100 they had the previous month from Jushin Liger's appearances, which shows what a huge draw he was for the company. One of the things Ring of Honor does have in their favor when the crowd is down is the sheer amount of merchandise they move in one evening because all night on December 4th, there was a group of fans buying stuff at the table. So – Johnson's numbers, you know, any live estimates are always going to deviate from the numbers I give just because I always go with the Observer just to have one consistent source. But still, I, I, no matter what numbers you look up, like your point remains, which is hundreds of people likely came just for Liger. And, you know, the difference between like you just mentioned, even though if you're just an indie wrestling fan, you I would argue this card is better than Weekend of Thunder Night 2. But oh, yeah. it doesn't have Liger. It doesn't have the huge legend – that you haven't seen in America in a long time. You know. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. It's like, because, you know, and the other record-breaking shows, you know, for, um, one was for WrestleMania 20 weekend. It had, um, you know, had Dusty Rhodes on it, had Ricky Steamboat's debut. Um, the uh, the Final Battle had um, Great Muda and other uh, All Japan stars. And of course, Death Before Dishonor had Jeff Hardy, you know, fairly fresh off of... Uh, being a big star in wwe so it just goes to show a lot of fans who really swell the numbers at those shows i guess they basically treat roh as like just an indie where it's like oh jeff hardy's coming to a show or oh the great mood is coming like i'm sure a lot of those people they know that ring of honors was different than other your local indie at the time bringing in a legend but you know this it just it just wasn't enough to for people them to follow it you know i feel like over the course of the next couple years that we review, you're going to have more and more people that are going to just show up for ROH just for ROH, for you know, to have guys like uh, Danielson and Joe and Homicide be the stars that they come for. Like, at the time, I was so into ROH, not really at this point, but like six months after this, um, I was so into ROH that you know, I would be way more excited to see um you know, to see Samoa Joe than I would be to see Jeff Hardy, or to see, uh, you know, even Ricky Steamboat, you know, at that point, just because I was so into the product of ROH that I, um, you know, Joe was the bigger star to me. So um, I feel like ROH is still in the process of getting more and more fans to think like that.
0: Yeah, and I, I, that's a really great point. And I think kind of hitching a ride on that point, it would be um, that I feel like they're also kind of transitioning where some of those shows you talk about when they booked a big name to draw. It was sort of like the match they put them in wasn't the draw. It was just, hey, you get to see them. Like, hey, Jeff Hardy's here, and no one remembers what match Jeff Hardy was in. Thank goodness. Yeah, exactly. But it was just the draw was Jeff Hardy's here. And likewise, you know, no one, Great Muda and Arashi versus Christopher Daniels and Dan Moth is not a dream match, but people came because, hey, the Great Muda's here. But I think as, even this year and as time goes on, the focus becomes more and more, you're seeing, you're not just seeing a, a, a legend if it's a, still an active wrestler, but you're seeing like a big name in a big Ring of Honor match, like Liger had. Danielson and then he wrestled Danielson and Keith the night too. You know, Kobashi's a draw on his own, but they put him in a major match with Samoa Joe. The draw wasn't just Kobashi, it was holy shit, it's Kobashi versus Joe. Even when like Lance Storm comes later, it's Lance Storm versus Brian Danielson. You know, the it becomes more yes, the big name is the draw, but it's also the context of it's you're gonna see what the big name does in like the world of Ring of Honor.
1: That's a really good point. And actually Kobashi Kobashi is an interesting um, example because you almost start to see the reversal of that trend when he shows up. Because if you remember – and I guess we, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. We'll have plenty of time to talk about this in seven or eight years when we get to it. Um, but um, the um, when Kobashi goes to Philadelphia for ROH, uh, his, his show um, actually draws a lot less than the – the shows upcoming after that that feature CZW versus, <laughs> uh, versus ROH. So it becomes like almost like CZW. You know, the indies, they do become a draw in and of themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a such a crazy thing. Cause that seems almost sacrilegious to say, but like that's the truth. Like in some respects, that feud was a bigger draw than Kenta Kobashi, like coming to America, which – it nuts, but it, it was the truth. But a uh, few other notes from Mike Johnson on this show that just don't really fit anywhere else. Um, Mike Johnson wrote about the Rexplex. The venue opened a sport up a sports bar. Not sure how much of an effect the alcohol is going to have on the fans down the line, but didn't seem to cause any problems last night. It's funny um, because
1: I um, – I remember Punkin I never went to the Rexplex, but I remember Punk his promo at Death Before Dishonor being like, oh, you poor people having to be at a venue that doesn't serve alcohol. How are you doing? And I guess now they change it. But uh, I believe, spoiler alert, the Rexplex closes completely uh, a few months later. So I'm guessing that's why they started serving alcohol. They were probably yeah, yeah, was, uh, having monetary troubles.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you. Do you think that's like a desperation move from a company that's just like – Maybe if we let them drink beer here, they'll be more likely to come to these um, wrestling shows or anything, really. Whatever, you know, Rexplex ran a lot of entertainment, I guess. But a couple other notes. Mike wrote, the Maximos came by to promote their fusion show this Friday in the same venue. of Honor Management welcomed them in and gave them their blessing for them to hand out flyers and wish them well with the show. So I thought that was interesting interesting because um the Maximos were promoting their own fusion company around this time it was interesting that uh you know sometimes you hear i mean when we covered the first year of through the years there's a lot of those early months of ring of honor about just how all of those philly indies were like seem to just hate each other's guts so it is pretty you know it's kind of a little bit heartwarming to see that ring of honor apparently like outright just said yeah you can promote your show that's coming up in the same venue the next week like i wonder compare that to yeah. Oh, sorry.
1: I was going to say, I wonder how much a change in ownership changed the tone of that whole thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And like, um, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense too. And just, you know, compare that to 2002 where like people were trying to lock up exclusivity to certain buildings in Philly and, you know, just a lot of, just a lot of uh, little petty feuds and things like that. But um Mike Johnson also wrote, A lot of fans I spoke to expected CM Punk to get the belt before the show. So Ring of Honor did a really excellent job of building to the main event. I guess we can talk about that a little bit later or significantly later in the show. And then finally, Mike Johnson used to love to do this, and he wrote here, There were fans from Japan, Canada, and California in attendance at the show last night, as well as all over the eastern seaboard. So I wonder if that speaks to... That's probably has to do more with Bobby Heenan and Cornette's face-off than Punk Joe, I would guess. But I guess you never mm, know.
1: You you think that people came from Japan to see B- Bobby Heenan and Jim Cornette face off? I guess maybe. I'm. Um, just maybe my, just my mindset is so different that like that like that didn't occur to me because you know to me it's like oh my god everyone's just waiting for this Joe versus Punk match. But I guess. I guess you're. I guess you're right. Like to, to like a normal person, um, uh, Bobby Heenan and Jim Cornette are a bigger deal. And that what that you know that angle was a big deal, but it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around that at that point because the Joe vs. Punk series is just so legendary in my mind now.
0: And th- that's something else that um. I I didn't think about until I just read that and just remind me what's happening on the show we're about to review. But when we're talking about how, you know, hundreds fewer fans came to this show than the last one, not only was it, you know, the blow off to Punk Joe, not only did you have Homicide versus Brian Danielson, Low Key versus Austin Aries, it was, you know, the big draw of the show, one of the the reason it was All-Star Extravaganza 2 as the name was it was the first ever kind of. Confrontation between Bobby Heenan and, and Jim Cornette in wrestling history, and so when you get, when you add that in there, and it still drew hundreds less, like that really speaks, I would guess, to Liger, L-
1: Liger, and of course, a legendary wrestler is always going to be a bigger draw than a legendary manager. Um, yeah, you know it's great, you know, but obviously Bobby Heenan, you know, Jim Cornette's been there a bunch of times, but Bobby Heenan is, you know, as far as managers go, like pretty much the legend in uh, yeah. wrestling managers. But, yeah, even and you know you know, and of course, you can always argue as promoters always do, the season you know it 's december it 's getting cold, the holidays are coming up, people don 't you know aren 't going to you know live events as much i don 't know maybe it's there's a second to show that, in a
0: month here in the Rexplex, yeah. which yeah, you know I mean a month is a fair amount of time between shows, but still that you know they turn around and ran it again immediately after the what, last one it so. is an
1: interesting choice, but um. But yeah, I guess, you know, so many factors go into drawing. Sometimes it's just uh, a puzzle, but I think we can say pretty clearly that Juschen Liger in 2004 was a
0: big draw in the uh, New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. Um, So now we'll finally get to the show itself. It was a double DVD set, um, long show, I think like four and a half hours or approaching five maybe it it was a long show um we open backstage with the return of not just colt cabana but the return of his talk show segment good times great memories uh colt calls generation next a bunch of punks for taking him out from the last few ring of honor shows by injuring his shoulder and he says by punks he doesn't mean cm punk uh colt says because of the lost money for the missed dates he couldn't pay his cell phone bill his water bill His heating bill or his prostitute bill. I I didn't know prostitutes like build you on like long time. I'm I'm shocked, you know, that he was able to, uh, you know, run a tab. But obviously, I'm not taking this seriously or anything. Uh, Colt says, "Well, you're you're
1: just you're just talking away, trying to make us not realize that what, um, you know, how many prostitute bills that you have."
0: (laughs) No, just uh, swimming. But uh, Colt says tonight, Strong and Evans will pay. Will pay, but even more importantly, it's good times, great memories. Uh, Colt puts on a Santa hat because it's December, and he says he's going to have one of the biggest guests ever, Twiggy the water skiing squirrel, but he's a little late, so until then, he's joined by Bobby the Brain Heenan. Uh, Heenan walks in to applause, and he has a giant plastic candy cane around his neck because, again, it's December. Uh, Colt welcomes Bobby to Chicago because the gimmick with good times, great memories is it's always in Chicago, even though it hardly ever is. Uh, Bobby replies, this is Toledo, Ohio. Uh, Colt at this point actually seems to kind of stumble nervously for a second or two. Can you blame blame him? No, not at all. But it's interesting because Colt, you know, usually very smooth at this kind of stuff. So uh, this is the first time I think I've seen Colt you know, actually being in kind of a starstruck position. But Bobby quickly steps in. He makes a couple of jokes. He compliments Colt. And then he then says, there must be some kind of idiot that he and Colt can make fun of. Colt then introduces Jimmy Jacobs, who is back to the hussing stuff just for the purposes of the segment, because it feels like the last few Ring of Honor shows, they've been trying to push Jimmy away from doing that. But of course you can't have the comedy of this segment unless he is hussing. So for one night, he's back to hussing. Uh, Heenan calls Jacob's, uh, furry boots, hair Jordans. He points to Jimmy's black painted fingernails and he asks him if he's dead from the nails down. Then he asks him if he's a mechanic. Then both Heenan and Jimmy start hussing. Jimmy leaves, or at least walks off camera and Heenan wonders how much it would cost for Jimmy to haunt a small home, which was a line that made me laugh. Um, Colt points out that Heenan has a debate with Jim Cornette tonight and Colt wants a preview. Uh, Bobby starts by saying he's had some trouble saying some words because he's recovering from cancer but adds that he feels just fine. He puts over Cornet as a guy that can talk better than he or Jesse Ventura ever could and he says he's probably the greatest talking manager in the history of the business. Bobby says Cornet does a very good job of making sure his boys have soap and of keeping their socks clean but there's a maiden Hojo's that could do the same thing. Uh, Bobby at this point says, Cornet is in a gunfight tonight, and Cornet has a knife, but he has an AK-47. Bang, bang, bye-bye. They wrap up to more applause from off-camera. Bobby points to someone off-camera and says, hey, she has her top off. Colt replies, are those real? And Bobby ends the segment by going, one is. So, uh, yeah, this is our first taste of Bobby Heenan on the night, and, you know, I thought this was pretty fun, and it's kind of the, uh, like... When Bobby Heenan, for those who don't really have the background, he was recovering from throat cancer, which would kind of be a bad, an on-and-off battle he would be having for years and kind of affect him for the rest of his life. And his voice, you know, clear, his mind was still sharp, but his voice was definitely strained and weaker than it It's, it's not the Bobby Heenan voice you would have grown up with in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, he had got off some good lines. It was clear, like what I mentioned, like that cult was starstruck from getting to, like, you know, do a comedy segment with Bobby Heenan, and just a nice way of introducing him.
1: Yeah, it was surprising to see Bobby, you know, make his big ROH debut in, like, a backstage segment like this, but it came off really well. I thought he got, with those rounds of applause that he got were, like, genuine. Like, the people who were, like, do, you know, just there, you know, for the filming were just like, man, we love Bobby Heenan, and he was, you know, he he was a really good sport, I thought, and uh it was great seeing Colt back, too, so uh this was one of, uh, the, my happiest uh, ways to uh, open up a DVD in a while.
0: I think if there's one takeaway you should get from our review of that segment, it is that I have never paid for sex. Not that I have anything against sex work as an industry, but if anyone that knows me listens to the show, please don't think I've ever paid for sex. No, he, no he
1: usually just has them like come over and lie in bed with him and talk for a while.
0: <laughs> no, that, he, that, just, that he just is wants far more likely. That is far more like. Hey, do you want to talk about like Low Key's two thousand two run? Like him, he carried that company in the first six months. I'll pay you two hundred dollars an hour. Like, don't take off your clothes. Just you, you actually, you actually crunch
1: paid crunch. someone right now. They're sitting there just listening to you record.
0: <laughs> Matt, I don't feel comfortable unless someone is watching. <laughs> us do the podcast. Um, <laughs> So we cut out to elsewhere backstage with Alice in danger. She's still in her evening gown as usual, still angry at Noth and Whitmer as usual. She says, she says that she still owns their contracts and is holding a match contract for a fight without honor. The most dangerous match in ring of honor. She says one they haven't done in a whole year. She says it's for vinyl battle 2004. And all she has to do is to get the current crew to sign it. She has the cameraman to follow her and she's on her quest to sign to find them. We will, See more of that later. I did think it's kind of interesting that, like, they're hyping a fight without honor as, like, the most violent match in Ring of Honor, but really all a fight without honor is is a no-disqualification match. Like, Yeah, I
1: I love that they have a distinction, like the fight without honor is somehow different from all these other um, no-holds-barred matches, and also that usually those fights without honor are, like, not—like, if you list the most violent matches in ROH history, they're usually not fights without honor.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like if someone said like you're going into the war games or something, it's going to be the most violent. At least you have like a re- a distinctive reason why you can argue that case. But just like we've seen in a few months ago, you know, CM Punk and uh, Ace Steel have a really violent like no DQ, no countout match with um, uh, moth and Whitmer that was not a fight without honor. But for some reason, even though it's going to be the exact same stip. This is when the violent matches happened, Matt.
1: Yeah, I would say that's one of the most violent matches in ROH history. I would say um, Carino, both Carino versus Homicide matches we reviewed are the other two most violent matches. Um, Joe versus um, Jay Briscoe in the cage. Um, the fight without honors, at this point they'd only had two, right? And one of them was like just a, kind of like a stiff, hard-hitting strike fest. And the other one was sort of like a big spot fest. Although, you could argue that match was very violent as well. But mm-hmm. – um, but yeah it's it's just funny because the uh fights of that honor never really ever get you know to the point where they really deserve that kind of reputation or hype
0: yeah so it's always it's interesting to see them really branding it as such here but uh Finally, we get to the first match on the show, and that would be the Ring of Honor students of Anthony Franco, Davey Andrews, Matt Turner, and Shane Hagedorn. They defeat Special K of Angel Dust, Deranged, Dixie, and Izzy, and they were escorted to the ring by Becky Bayless, Dixie, and Lacey, and uh, – or I guess – Cage match, you've screwed me because Dixie could not escort, uh, escort escort them to the ring and be in the match. I think, and I think they're also leaving out uh, Cheech and Cloudy. But,
1: uh, I thought, you know, I thought, uh, but yeah, Dixie was in the match. Um, y- so yeah, yeah. yes, I, I believe Cheech, Cheech and Cloudy were there.
0: Yeah. So anyway, uh, the students win in four fifty four when uh, Davey Andrews pins Izzy with a roll up. Uh, Matt, you know this. Obviously, the this match is really just a r- excuse for the. Post match angle, which we can talk about after, but I mean, not much to the match. But good luck, Matt. Tell me, to have some thoughts about this match? Um, yeah, it's really much more about the angle. You know, they're
1: they're you know they're making very clear like um, there's the the serious Special K members because they all of Special K comes out and they're coming out to music for the first time in a while, but. Everyone is excited except for Becky, Angel Dust, Angel Dust, and Dixie. Angel Dust and Disky, Dixie are still very somber, and they're very sullen, and other words that start with S. And, um, you know, they shake hands, and the others don't. Um, Angel Dust has a new short haircut. I don't know if that's relevant, but I wanted to say so. Um, but, uh, so, so that's, you know, there's still the rift in, uh, Special K. Um, but Deranged is acting like his old self, and I think this is his first match in months. Am I right about that?
0: It, it definitely felt like that. I didn't go back and look, but I was like, "Oh, Deranged!" Like it was a treat to see him again after so so long.
1: And he was being himself, like he was being wacky, and I it was like, "Oh man, I miss this guy." Um, yeah. And you know, it's funny because um, Punk says at one point that he told his students to keep the more like party-centric Special K members in the ring. You know, I guess because you know they're on drugs, so they're easier to beat, but. And, but Derange dominates when he's in the ring. And also, it seemed to me that, like, the partiers have done better in recent months. Like, didn't Izzy win a match the last month while uh, Angel, Dust, and Dixie keep losing all the time? So, I don't know if that's good advice. Um, also, Punk just straight up says on commentary that Davey Andrews is his top graduate, which I'd be like, if I was one of the other students, I'd be like, hey, man you know, you can pretend that you like all of us, um, equally. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it was, um, you know, um, there were, you know, it was mostly, uh, you know, not much to the match. Um, Dixie and Shane Hagedorn do some mat wrestling, which you probably wouldn't have expected in this match. Um, but you know, it's a lot of big moves. Um, Franco, he gets, he takes, he, well, he comes in and he takes like a big, like head drop power bomb driver thingy by Izzy pretty much right off the bat. Um, but Izzy doesn't bother. Uh, Izzy doesn't bother covering, so the announcers say he's just trying to impress Lacy. Um, but winning would impress would impress her most of all, in my opinion. Um, so um, you know, breaks down. All eight guys are in the ring. Davy's kind of a house of fire. All the students do. There are like ten punches in the corner, except for Davy because he's his own man. Um, uh, Dixie dives onto Hagedorn. Angel Dust hits a Death Valley driver type of thing on Franco. I always say type of thing because it's never the exact move. You know, they always have some (laughs) variation on it, you know? Um, um, Angel Dust backs into Davy and accidentally swings his arm and hits Izzy, uh, which allows Andrews to roll up Izzy to get the surprise win. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, like it was this in conjunction with the post-match angle I had no problem with it, you know. Like I, I thought it was perfectly fine for what it was. I thought everyone played their roles just fine.
0: Yeah, this was mostly just uh, as is the case with all these student matches so far—the students bumping and and selling for their opponents. Um, it felt like every everyone basically had like four mini-matches where everyone kind of paired off. Every student got like a minute, except I felt like Shane Hagedorn actually got a little short-changed on time where it felt like everyone else got a full minute. And it, for some reason, it felt to me, I didn't go back and time it. Like, he got to do way less. But, and then the match breaks down. There's the four count, the four corner 10 punches, except they're one of the, I forget which one of the four was not doing it in sync. He was like way faster than the crowd. And then like you mentioned, Davey Andrews was just, choking his opponent in the corner so it was like really two people in the corner doing 10 count punches for the crowd and then two people not doing the spot um the highlight of the match i do think you mentioned it was that um uh, anthony franco taking what i would describe as almost like the awful waffle for people that have watched like chuck taylor on the indies that kind of on the shoulders into a a pile driver and it was the second straight show i believe where anthony Franco took some kind of pile where it looked like he almost was like an inch away from dying but you know it, it was one of those spots where I believe like Gabe and Punk on commentary like both gave a little legit scream when they re- were watching the spot even though you know, obviously the match happened it was not live but whenever it gets like a real genuine reaction like a spot like it always gets a little bit of a chuckle from me um and I thought that end that you talked about where uh um Angel Dust hits a big move on his student, and then he just kind of stands there looking at him, prone on the mat, and then does this real obvious, slight stumble backwards into Izzy and Andrews to allow Andrews to get the roll up for the win. I felt that ca- that looked really kind of clunky the way they did it, um, and, and I realized the point is just building dissension. So I don't; it's not my problem with the idea of the finish. It's just how they executed. But overall, yeah, there's not much to the match. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It was more just. A uh, excuse for the angle, and what the angle is, is after the match, uh, Becky and Lacey argue like they often do, and during this period, they're held apart yet again. Uh, the Dixie, Angel Dust, and Izzy side turns to – or Dixie, Angel Dust, and Becky side, I should say, turns to leave when the rest of Special K attacks them from behind. Uh, Lacey beats down Becky, including she hits a DDT on her. Izzy and Deranged hit Angel Dust and Izzy with some moves. And we finally have, after all these months of the teasing of dissension, the official Special K split right here.
1: I think it's funny that like during a, an evil heel like beat ta- beatdown um, – um, you know, um, the, uh, the, uh, the baby faces do come back and Dixie hits a code red on deranged. I just like the idea that like, you're having like a, a violent split from your friends and you you do a code red. I think that's funny, <laughs> but I will say this Lacey's implant DDT made me say, take that Mark Nolte. Cause if you remember, he, he went on these rants about how Lacey doesn't know anything about wrestling. And I feel like Gabe probably at some point should have been like, you know, she's She's a wrestler, right?
0: But yeah, he, he didn't. And she's, she's a decent wrestler; like she's not bad at all. And but also, at like,
1: the fact she is a wrestler, you know, decent or not. Yeah. So, but so Nolte acting like she's just some like hanger on is is you know even more insulting than it would be if it was true. If it, you know.
0: And I – one other thing we should mention, I guess uh, – well, not I guess, I know, um, is I believe this was Matt Turner's first at least main card Ring of Honor match of this crop of students. And he's one of the rare students. He is still working today, I believe. When I was looking over him in cage match, he's still working indies, I believe, at least as recently as in the last year or so. So, you know, he's been wrestling for at least 16 years. So a lot of guys can't say that. So good on him. Yeah. And uh he definitely had a lot of kind of piss and vinegar in this match, like a lot of he would scream and fire up a bit. Obviously, again, hard to really say much about any of the students where most of what they're called to do in these matches is just take bumps and sell in very short matches, but I did notice a little bit there. Um
1: I do wanna say I did think the special K split was pretty well built up to. You know, they, they did they didn't rush it, you know, it it sort of it made sense after a while you know like the kind of the change in attitude of the two guys the only complaint that i have about the whole situation is that they really do make Dixie and Angel just seem like losers the whole time like you want to feel like you want to root for those two right cuz they're the baby faces yeah. but they don't really give you much reason to they're just mopey and they lose a lot
0: <laughs> Yeah, and they do nice attention to the detail, like even this match and other of the recent matches, you know, they, Dixie and Angel Dust would shake hands with their opponents, but when the other Special K members would wrestle, they still wouldn't and, and stuff like that. But yeah, and we've talked about it in the past, but just the idea that Gabe would always harp on for the entire run of Special K that like, these guys have so much talent, if they just took things seriously and got off the drugs, they'd, uh, you know, they'd be so great. And then the guys to get off the drugs so that are supposed to be the faces are the ones that go on the losing streak. And Izzy got a win like on a recent show and he's the heel that is r- reportedly still on drugs. So like in yeah. that sense going to your point, yeah, it makes it makes the faces seem like idiots that shouldn't have actually gotten off drugs.
1: Yeah, I mean, assuming that winning wrestling matches is the only thing important in life. Um, but I will say, like, it's funny because the heart and soul of the Babyface faction is actually Becky Bayless. She actually has fire, she actually has personality, um, unlike the other guys. Um, unfortunately, she's not going to be around in ROH for much too longer at this point. Um, you know, uh, she, um, for too much longer, excuse me. Um, she, um, once once they kind of uh, get into like their own like Asriel and Dixie tag team, uh, Becky's sort of out of the picture.
0: Yeah, and, and that is a change because really this feud more has been felt up to this point more like a Becky Bayless-Lacy uh, feud with, the rest, with Special K's wrestlers actually being basically like their pawns. Like they're doing more of the promos. They're the ones that are getting into these pull-aparts more than the others until this show. And so yeah, to lose her is kind of like losing – one half of the feud in a way, even though technically, you know, the wrestlers will keep going. But, um, we cut to Samoa Joe backstage and he's in a hoodie. I don't know why I wrote that in my notes. I just, I thought, Hey, Samoa Joe's in a hoodie. That's different. Uh, Joe gets, says to be careful what you wish for. Cause you just might get it. Uh, Joe says that punk begged and pleaded for one more chance against Joe for that world title. And tonight he's got it. Uh, Gabe then says, cut does the old, the trick we've seen in a million Ring of Honor shows where the promo's over and the wrestler thinks it's over, but the camera's still rolling and they, they fall for it every time that. But anyway, uh, Ricky Steamboat walks in to talk to Joe. Uh, Ricky says his series with Punk, Joe's series with matches with Punk, reminds him of his own trilogy of matches with Ric Flair. He says he thoroughly enjoyed watching them and says if Joe doesn't mind, he wants to sit out there tonight to watch their third match. Uh, Joe says it would be honor, uh, it would be an honor and they shake hands. And I love that, like, you know, there's a reason in the match why Steamboat is going to be sitting at ringside. And I love that the, they go to the lengths. Like, in a way, like, this, you did not need to do this little thing. You could have just had Steamboat do what he does later and just come out and say, hey, I'm going to sit at ringside. I guess this, 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 these matches have been awesome. But instead, they actually go out of their way to be like, here's Steamboat asking if he can sit at ringside.
1: And And this is kind of an example of what I've told you about as far as, like, the two different continuities, the website continuity and the DVD continuity. Because I think on the website they announced that Steamboat would be at ringside, like, in advance of the show.
0: Yeah, and I think there's something later where I was listening to the An Honorable Mention podcast's review of this show, and they said something about, they weren't sure, but they could have sworn that maybe, like, the Jimmy Jacobs, cult Cabana, roderick strong jack evans tag was previously announced for the show but then the angle that happens on this show kind of makes it seem like it's an impromptu booking you know so like you yeah there are definitely some times where when you watch the shows there are certain things that are made to seem like they just happen on spur of the moment where if you actually were following along on the website you'd be like no this was announced three weeks earlier yeah Uh, um that brings us though to the second match on the show. That would be Jay Lethal defeating the Weapon of Mask of Mask Destruction, not mass mask. What a two thousand and four name. <laughs> scored to the ring by Prince Nana, and uh, Jay Lethal wins via pinfall in six minutes thirty nine seconds after he hits the Dragon Suplex. So who was the Weapon of Mask Destruction? That would be uh, Slash Venom, aka Flash Flanagan, and. Um, A.K.A. hopefully some other word that rhymes with Flash. Um. <laughs> Mike Johnson, though, the night of the show or the night after when he wrote his review, did not know that Mike Johnson wrote, Jane Lethal pinned Prince Nana's weapon of mask destruction in 639. Not sure who mask was yet. He actually left the building with his mask on. So yeah, that, that's dedication, I'll say. And um, I guess it's not that much dedication, but for – the role he had that 's dedication, so we all we all have to wear our masks inside, outside, everywhere we go we are all weapons of some form of destruction, mm-hmm. but um I thought this was match was kind of interesting in the sense of as a match, I thought it was above average, but nothing special, but it was interesting in structure because a lot of times in these ring of honor matches when there 's a new guy getting like a short match we see him like the, the veteran lets him carry most of the match, even though they're losing in the end. And they're doing like every crazy spot they can think of. Cause it's basically their audition. And what I thought was interesting in this case was, you know, this is flash Flanagan, only his second match of ring of honor. He did that. I believe it was him and, uh, another port, uh, wrestler from the Puerto Rico scene wrestling, uh, um, Moffin Whitmer. And it was only like a three or five minute, ma- like a really short match there too. And it, if I remember correctly, that the story of that match might have been that they were Allison Danger's hired gun. So is he, Flash Flanagan, done two Ring of Honor matches where he's been like a hired gun for someone each time? But that's a weird thing. But anyway, most of these matches where it's like a newcomer, they just do every crazy spot because they only got a few minutes and they're trying to impress. But I thought Flash Flanagan wrestled a very unselfish match, like a very giving match, because this match was all built around him basically being kind of a blank canvas for Jay lethal to be a really good baby face, which Jay lethal is like he would let Jay lethal get a comeback and then he would slow him down and do something like a lot of times he would just do something like a chin lock or an eye poke rather than a fancy move. And then Jay lethal would fight out and make his little comeback. And then, you know, flash would slow it back down again. It was a very simple, but smart structure. I, I guess the, The flashiest move, no pun intended, he did was – Lethal does a springboard and um, Flash catches it and turns it into a power slam.
1: I would say that's Uh, the slashiest move.
0: (laughs) And he also does a – he locks Lethal in a a hammerlock at one point and then rams his head into the buckle while holding the hammerlock, which I thought was a neat little variation of that. But for the most part, this was just about Lethal – and Lethal is a great babyface. He does really nice little comebacks. He always has really great urgency in his comebacks. Like, he's always just a little spitfire of a babyface. And one weird criticism I will say of this match is Jay Lethal does a great job selling his back in this match. And I felt like he almost sold it too good because it's such a short match and. Like, I didn't feel like Flash Flanagan did that much, but Jay Lethal is selling his back pretty significantly. I was like, almost, I was almost like, you're almost giving this too much creep. It's like, it's kind of almost taking me out of the match how much you're selling your back. But overall, I thought it was an above average, but nothing special, little showcase match for Jay Lethal.
1: Um, I just thought of another gimmick for him. Splash Cannonball. He's a life, he's a lifeguard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: <laughs> Um, and you already know what his finisher is. I mean, it's his last name. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The um, the splash. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> splash
1: Mountain and a cannonball. He could do both. Um, um, but um, yeah. I wrote something very similar as far as the back selling, just like. Was he even working his back that much? Like, I, I, I didn't really notice that. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say this match was above average. I thought it was a pretty basic match, um, which is fine. You know, that's what they were going for. But I did think it was kind of strange... Because like, didn't they say that Jay Lethal was going to wrestle the Outcast Killers? I, I, that, that that was what I remembered. Maybe I'm wrong. But then suddenly this weapon of mask destruction thing. I don't know. I feel like when you just have like a random guy in a mask, it doesn't make the match feel that important. Um Not nothing wrong with what the guys did. I did think you know some of the the, the storyline stuff was funny, like that Nana raised taxes in Ghana to pay for the weapon of mass destruction, and it 's like you know um, you can hire a, a, a job guy for for not that much money um, but um, <laughs> but um, Punk decides he 's going to call him Ghana mask, so he doesn 't have to say his full name, but he doesn 't really uh, stick to that for very long. I feel like weapon is a perfectly fine way to uh to shorten the name.
0: Um, or even destruction. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, w- uh, WMD. Um, <laughs> that everyone abbreviated it that way for years, um, but um, yeah, I uh, yeah. It just it was to me. It was just a very basic baby face heel match just to make lethal seem like a triumphant baby face and get him some wins. That's really all it was. I, I wouldn't say it was good or bad. You know, there was nothing wrong with anything they did, but it was hard to get into a match like this. Um, I, I, I did like how after the match, Nana got on the mic and called weapon a piece of shit because you <laughs> never, you never get anything like just that blunt in a wrestling promo. And it just, it's just, and it's also just funny to hear Nana say it. Um, and it's also funny because it's like, hey, you hired him, man. That that that, that, that reflects badly on you.
0: That, 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 for some reason that made me laugh like a lot when I was watching it, and just you saying it again made me laugh. Like it's such a simple thing. Like I don't know why it's so funny, but just like the fact that he's like, you piece of shit.
1: <laughs> All he did was lose a match too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then like you said, Nana says final battle will be Jay's final battle because he's going to raise the taxes in Ghana again and make every citizen there pay them, ha- pay him half of their $25 a week paycheck <laughs> to put Lethal out of wrestling. I think there was one point during commentary or maybe maybe it comes later or something like or, Ga- Nana himself might have mentioned that like everyone's like listening to this match on the radio <laughs> – like in Ghana, like like they're doing live <laughs> play, play, play of Ring of Honor in <laughs> to, Ghana to Gabe and CM Punk.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, um, so it's like,
0: I I just I just wait till we
1: get to final battle because it's a really funny payoff to him saying he's going to raise taxes for this next match that he's going to have.
0: Uh, good stuff. But um, after the match, uh, at, at a few points of the show, I won't go through them all because they're just kind of meaningless, but. Uh, We get clips of past shows in Ring of Honor because that's usually what Ring of Honor does on these double DVD releases is when a show's long enough to be on two DVDs, it's usually not long enough to completely fill two DVDs, so we almost always will get like extra little video packages, which in Ring of Honor on this show, it's basically just like, hey, do we have a match? Do we have a clips from an older match that kind of plays into this match? We'll show like a minute of it, and um you know, and that also means we get every entrance, you know, Ring of Honor, you can always tell how tight they are from time for how mu- how much of the entrances do you get to see on a show, and on, on a double DVD release set, you're usually getting like every second of every entrance, regardless of how noteworthy or interesting it is, but um, that brings us to the Scramble Tag Team Match, the Outcast Killers of Diablo Santiago and Oman Tortuga, with Prince Nana defeated BJ Whitmer and Dan Moth, the carnage crew of DeVito and Loke, and the ring crew express of Dana and Marcos in nine minutes, 21 seconds when Tortuga pinned Marcos after the outcast killers hit their combination dropkick, kind of a full Nelson dragon-ish suplex. I don't know if it's exactly a dragon suplex. Um... Mike Johnson wrote about this match that Loke got banged up during the match and was walking around a little gingerly, but he was okay as he's a tough SOB. Mike Johnson wanted to really put him over. DeFito nearly got into it with a goofball fan who got a little too close to the action. But the goofball um,
1: fan was okay because he's a tough SOB.
0: <laughs> uh, Matt, you know what did you think about this match? Kind of a crazy match that went all around the building.
1: Yeah, I um I actually thought this was pretty fun. Um, better than I expected, honestly. I mean, you know, nothing you have to go out of your way to see, but um, you know, there was fun stuff. First of all, um, Alice in Danger skulked down to the ring almost immediately, allowing Punk to get in some very um, you know, inappropriate, problematic shots at her. Um, like when Gabe said, "This is more of an anything goes match than a scramble," and Punk said, "That's right up Allison's alley," literally. And I'm like, uh-huh. literally, what, what is the – no, I don't even know what that could mean. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's – You, you know, know,
0: women, alleys, yeah, empty lane. It's private parts, man. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I have never paid for sex. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> uh,
1: anyway, so let me try to get back to wrestling we're talking about, right? Um, so um, – but they do some fun spots. So basically they have um, – Marcos, Dunn, and the Outcast Kill is there to kind of do some high spots and kind of entertain the fans in the ring while uh, Loke, DeVito, uh, um, uh, Moff, and Whitmer are fighting in the crowd for a lot of the match. But a lot of the focus is on the uh, Whitmer and Moff versus Carnage Crew feud. So they do things like... um, Like, the Carnage Crew is going to do their Carnage Plex on Tortuga, but Whitmer comes in and helps DeVito do it, and that makes Loke mad. And then, um, there's another spot where, um, Moff and Whitmer are trying to do a double team move, but then Loke comes in and does, like, the move. I, I, I forgot what spot that was, but I, um, but, like, this, but, like, that makes, uh, oh, um, but that makes, um, uh, Whitmer mad, like, just, you know, cute stuff like that, which I, you know, I thought was fine. Um, at one point, um, Punk says, Loke's Jewish, isn't he? And he's beating up Hillbilly Jesus on B.J. Whitmer. And I'm like, I have never heard that Loke was Jewish. And as a um, as a Jewish wrestling fan, I always want to know who the Jewish wrestlers are. <laughs> and I never heard that about Loke. Not, I mean, I guess Punk would probably know he's in the locker room with him. So there you go. Loke, Jewish. Um, you heard it from CM Punk.
0: Uh, Goldberg, now you have a second hero. You know, you have Goldberg and now you have H.C. Loke.
1: (laughs) I don't think it's Loki's fine, but I. My two heroes. You can tell from listening to me that those are the two guys I model myself (laughs) after. I model myself after. Um, But yeah, in the crowd, Moff and Loke, they're just hitting each other with chairs. Whitmer and DeVito fight on the other side of the crowd. And, um, back in the ring, Marcos hits a springboard Rana on Santiago, head scissors into a DDT on him. Um, meanwhile, Loke does an elbow drop off the bleachers onto Muff, while DeVito tries to smother B.J. Whitmer with a pizza box, which (laughs) I have definitely never seen before or since. Um, and Punk says, doesn't he know he'll just come back on Easter anyway? You know, get it? Because he's hillbilly Jesus. Um, but, um it's uh but tortuga when they and and uh and santiago when they hit their drop kick suplex combo it's kind of sad that nana isn't there to celebrate the win by them but i guess it makes sense given the angle um the other fun point in the match was that at one point um when moff and whitmer are trying to fire each other up by chopping each other and gabe calls them Dun and marcos which is a really funny mix-up uh because you know they don't they don't look alike just in case you don't know what they look like those two teams do not look alike um but yeah, it was. I, I I thought it was all over the place, but kind of in a good way. Um, you know, sufficiently chaotic to be more entertaining than the usual Moff and Whitmer Carnage Crew match. In fact, I think it was probably my favorite match involving these two teams together so far. So I um yeah, I give it a mild thumbs up.
0: Yeah, I, 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 that's about where I would put it too. Where um. It, not, nothing incredible, but like surprisingly better than what we've seen from those two teams. Cause this, this scramble, there was no tags even, even by scramble um, standards. This was a wild match where second half of it is basically, um, carnage crew and uh moth and whitmer brawling to the crowd almost like tupelo concession stand brawl at one point getting near the maui maui frozen drink stand which i tweeted this uh, on online but uh, you have rarely heard gabe sapolsky more earnest on commentary than when he gives a recommendation to the maui maui frozen drink stand if you're ever at the rexplex i and, and um uh, shane hagedorn when he saw that tweet confirmed that apparently those were good drinks um I think I've had multiple people convert to it. apparently Maui Maui was the one thing keeping the Rexplex going, if judging by the amount of responses I got to that. But um
1: <laughs> Well if this was if this was um a new thing at this show, then the Maui Maui Frozen Drink Stand was only there for two
0: ROH shows. Um so how much could people really have gotten to love it? Well, I don't know if the Maui Maui's was new I'm not sure because I don't think the Maui Maui is alcoholic. Well oh, I'm I not see. I'm not even sure. I just I, don't I even just, ass-
1: just, just assumed that it
0: was. Yeah. Um anyway, moving on. Um yeah, so this was you know, I felt like the all one everyone was working hard, but particularly the Carnage crew and uh, Moffin, Moth and Wentworth, I thought were working really hard. Like they did basically all their flashiest regular kind of moves, like a Moth and Whitmer did the combo figure four and Frog Splash, which they don't break out on every show. They do do it sometimes. DeVito did the moonsault to the floor. They did the carnage. Like, and then, like you said, they did um kind of some mix-up moves where one member of the carnage crew and one member of Moth and Whitmer would do like a classic double team from one of the teams, like the carnage plex. Um, and then we got like the corner basement mint drop kick, and cannonball combo from Moth and Whitmer. So basically every – Every move that they knew that these guys could do that would fit like a very short, hectic, crazy scramble, they made sure to do here. And then the brawl on the outside, like you mentioned, they did the uh, my fa- one of my favorite dumb wrestling things, which is whenever someone does a diving, jumping, flying move off the first step of the bleachers, which is like a drop of one foot. Hey, you, hey, you I-
1: try it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Hey, I'll, I'll I I got bad knees, man. I can't do it. Uh-huh. Don't don't expect me to do it. Um, but and, and the pizza box smothering. I just wrote in my notes. I've been there. Um, I, I yeah, it was it was inter- it was more interesting. I'll take I'll say this. This was I'll take this kind of Carnage crew, um, Moff and Whitmer brawl a million times over the brawls they normally do, which is just brawl at ringside where everyone's just cutting themselves 30 seconds of the match and they're throwing each other into barricades a hundred times Like this is a hundred times more entertaining than that now when
1: you say everyone's cutting themselves 30 seconds into the match you mean the fans right because they're just <laughs> full of self-loathing at watching the Carnage crew versus um Moff and Whitmer was that a problematic joke? I apologize
0: I, I was going to say in today's COVID era, era that's the only way fans now can express their displeasure <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, we're bad. <laughs> but um, Cancelled. We're cancelled. Uh, uh, um, there was a, I, one problem I did notice in the match was there was a couple times where people were clearly just waiting for someone to come in for a spot they were late on. Like, I think the spot you were kind of alluding to, the double team, the mix-up double team you couldn't quite remember was um, at one point, or maybe, yeah, Moth is holding uh, Omont or Tuga in a waist lock, and he needs, I forget if it's Loke or DeVito to uh, come in the ring to do the the combo suplex lariat and whatever the carnage crew is supposed to do it he's like late for it and so Moth and where it's only like probably three seconds that they're just standing there with moff basically hugging a tortuga from behind but it just feels like forever and you can tell Moth's like looking for like come on get in here and then i think it's loke when loke gets in the ring he basically doesn't even do a lariat, he just like rushes it and basically does like a light push to tortuga as moff is suplexing him so that was an not a great looking spot, but um and the other thing I felt kind of bad for was, like I said, uh the second half of the match, uh the carnage crew and Moffin went were on the outside, and at that point, I felt bad because it was like basically it left um the ring crew express and the outcast killers to have a match in the ring. But you could tell that like from the reactions, like less than half of the crowd was watching them. Like everyone was watching the crowd. And I felt like these poor guys, these guys that work on the ring crew, they're trying to like get a you know, get a foothold in this business. They finally get like some time where the spotlight's just on them, but really the spotlight's not even on them at all. Even though that's like the finish of the match. Well, I know what they were telling themselves while no one was watching them. It's a DVD product. (laughs) Um, let me just see I'm just fine and there was one other fuck up I want to mention this match Uh, the ref fucked up a three count like we just saw a couple shows ago in the uh, Havana pit bulls uh, Evans uh, strong tag match where the ref dives down it's a different ref he dives down he windmills his arms so it looks like it's almost hits the mat but it doesn't but it looks like a one count and then at least a couple fans must have thought it was a one count because you can hear a couple voices count one two three and then we get a kick out what would have been 3.5 and then you see the ref immediately tell the timekeeper like don't ring the bell that wasn't the finish so refs you got to be careful not to when you dive down to you know get on the ready for the pin you can't windmill your arms so wide because you're really going to make it look like you're actually doing a one count not that would have been a huge deal for this match but still kind of a and also matt we didn't see much of it but like devito shoving that fan where they're out in the crowd like i didn't see that fan do anything wrong like i i was like he didn't seem that close like he was a little bit close but they were in the crowd and maybe you know it was a quick camera cut so maybe he did something otherwise but that's become a theme on the show there was a lot of negative wrestler fan in, wrestler fan interactions on the show i felt
1: well wow, i di- i you know i missed a lot of that then i i so i'm curious to hear you point out the different examples
0: yeah so um After the match, the country crew and Moffin Whitmer they brought up the stairs onto the second floor of the Rexplex, and we get some shots of fans calmly walking by as the two teams brawl off in the distance, which also made me chuckle. And then we cut away, but not before we hear one fan offhandedly say, I'm going to go play some paintball. Which
1: Yes, I I did hear that. I I didn't know if that was a fan or if that was just another guy at the Rexplex. Like, uh, Were they letting other people in?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know because again, you have to, for people that don't watch, like you have to remember the Rexplex was a multi-purpose facility that was big enough to hold more than just Ring of Honor. So there could often be like other events, concerts, sports things happening in other parts of the Rexplex. Sometimes the sound would bleed over, and apparently, possibly paintball. I don't know indoor paintball at the Rexplex, but yeah,
1: because apparently, because paintball is not like a quick like a quick activity that I really like that. You could be like, yeah, I'll just do a quick paintball, then come back and watch the ne- the next match. Like, I don't know. I feel like you, but anyway, yeah, who knows? yeah
0: That seems like something you plan for. You don't just go, oh, I'm going to spur of the moment paintball, but I guess that's what the Rexplex was offering. And who am I to argue with the Rexplex and their long history of business success? But, uh, next up we had the ring of honor, pure title match, John Walters defeated Jimmy Ray by count out in 16 minutes, Fifty one seconds. Another um, another
1: match broadcast on Ghana radio. I love the idea that like Ring of Honor was never ever broadcast live except on the radio in Ghana.
0: It's like those old – when I was watching like WWF pay-per-views in the 90s as a kid where they'd be like, this is on radio WWF in like the Armed Forces and I was like, man, I wish I was in the army. I could listen to WWF pay-per-views on the radio for free and I just imagine that is Ring of – in Ring of Honor's world, radio Ring of Honor is only available to Ghana.
1: Yeah, I mean that's, that's definitely what happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. One pink purplish streamer gets thrown in the ring before, for, for Rave. So we're not, still not at the level, we're not at the point yet where Rave gets the toilet paper, but we are getting, between this and I, another recent show where people are starting to throw in like one streamer just to kind of dick around with Jimmy Rave. He angri- angrily kicks out of the ring. Uh, before the match, Todd Sinclair goes over the pure title rules, and he says the final rule is that there's no managers or seconds at ringside, which I don't know if we've ever seen that before. So he kicks Nana and the Outcast Killers out. Uh, nana freaks out as the crowd actually chants "Nana, Nana, 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 nana Hey, 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 Goodbye," which automatically fun. Yeah, exactly. It probably wasn't intentional, but works perfectly, and um, so. Uh, About this match, uh, John Walters is another guy in the vein of a Matt Stryker or a B.J. Whitmer, where he's very mechanically sound. He can be in good matches, but he's just missing that something special. There's not one unique thing about him stylistically or his gimmick where he can really hang his hat on and say, this is what makes me more than just a very competent but somewhat bland wrestler. And I felt like this match was kind of a testament to that. It follows a structure of a lot of indie matches of the time, especially pure matches, where the first half is a lot of mat work, counters and reversals, and then at some point, it's like they just flip a switch, and from the rest of the match on, it's a lot more higher impact offensive moves and near falls till the finish. And it's all solidly enjoyable, but it never really loses that vibe to me that something's, like, you know, something's missing and there there are some decent sequences of, of those counters and reversals. But at some points, the crowd reacts at some points they don't. And I thought maybe a troubling sign for John Walters is, Jimmy Rave is one of the only real pure heels Ring of Honor had at this point, like one of the only guys that got almost complete boos. And at one point, there's like a 50-50 Let's Go Walters, Let's Go Jimmy chant. And I felt like if you're a babyface champion and the most hated heel in the company maybe at this point, like in terms of just no one usually like cheers him the way like a low-key or a homicide would even when they're heels, like when he's getting 50-50 dueling chants in a match with you – it's probably not a coincidence that uh, John Walter's stats has to turn heel in the next show but um yeah just okay but not nothing special but i, I will say the part of this match I really liked, I think I would have liked this match a lot more if they made the whole match out of it, was in the first half, Jimmy Rave's healing, because I thought we would see a lot more of this when Nigel started, got his pure title run, but I thought it was one of the first times a guy really used like the idea of, oh, I'm a heel, I can use these um, pure title rules to my advantage. Like It's another early example of that, where he um, he slaps and taunts Walters at one point to throwing a punch and... The ref obviously warns Walters because you can't throw a punch in a to the face in a pure title match, but you get a warning. And then the second one's a rope break. Then later on a corner break, um, when the ref is separating them and not looking, uh, Rave claps his hands and then acts like Walters punched him again. And at that point, it does cost Walters a uh, a rope break. Uh, he tells the rave at one point tells the ref to check the time. And then he throws a punch and hits Walters in the face with it. And the ref doesn't see it. And it's all really simple stuff. But to me, that was, you know, when I talk about like this match or John Walters in general, not having like something that really sets them apart, that stuff, you know, that's the kind of stuff that gives a match character. and, And that's the part that I remember other than the finish. And so the finish is, I guess, the other really memorable part where, uh, walters gets rave in the sharpshooter rave crawls to the outside but he's exhausted his rope break so that doesn't save him so rave then crawls under the ropes walters still holds onto the sharpshooter even as they're going under the ropes walters holds on to it until they get to a 16 count because remember only pure title matches in ring of honor have a 20 count otherwise ring of honor doesn't have count outs when they get to about 16 walters lets go of the hold runs back in the ring And Walters wins by count-out. Rave can't get in the last four seconds. And I believe Gabe says, and I think he's right, it's the first count-out win ever in Ring of Honor history. And that's the kind of finish where in another promotion you go, oh, what a chintzy, dumb finish. But because it's such a novelty that Ring of Honor has literally never had a count-out finish, I believe, it's like, oh, that's a cool, neat little twist. But overall, just decent match. I didn't think it was anything special. Matt?
1: Um I liked it a lot more than you. Um I thought it was quite good. You know, I wouldn't say great or anything, but I thought it was it's a real, you know, a solidly good match. Um I I also liked Rave's healing at the at the beginning. The only big heel spot of his that I didn't like was the spot where he slapped his hands and pretended that Walters punched him where the ref took the rope break away just because that just makes the ref seem too dumb like you should you should have to see a punch before you penalize someone for it um but other than that i love the heel stuff and i liked you know the intensity down the stretch i really did like a lot of the sequences like the part where um walters blocks a rave clash attempt and locks on the sharpshooter and rave reverses out of that and instead of using a rope break uh, which, you know, I love anything where, like, one of the fun things about these matches is the cre- clever ways guys avoid using the rope break, and he gets Walters in the Boston Crab, then Walters reverses out of that and gets his own Boston Crab, and that gets Rave to use his, uh, his final rope break. I really enjoyed that. I, um, I, I agree with you that it was a bad sign for Walters. I think the crowd really wanted Rave to win. Like, they when when he got his head scissors crossface on, the crowd popped really, really big for that. Um, so I think people just wanted to see that title change, and I think people were really getting into rave. I think even down the street, like even as the months went on, the booing rave, you know, I still didn't think, I still don't think rave really had true heel heat even at his peak. I think that he was like a f- someone that people like had fun booing. You know what I mean? Um yeah. But that's ROH. I don't know if you could really ever. You know, defeat that, uh, that concept. Even,
0: even just getting heel heat consistently like that was a victory in Ring of Honor. Because, like, yeah, like you just said, it was really hard to get heel heat in Ring of Honor.
1: Right, exactly. Um, at one point, Punk says that Rave is going bald. And I'm like, hmm, it's 16 years later and I don't think he's bald. So I um,
0: so- His hair is definitely thinned and receded, but, like, not close to this time period.
1: Yeah, I mean listen, in sixteen years he's still got a full head of hair. Not a full head of hair, maybe I don't know, actually. I should I should go back and look. He has hair on his head, is what I'm yeah. saying. So I don't think he was going bald in uh sixteen years ago. That's all I'm trying to say. Um yeah. but um but yeah, well you know, there's a lot of cool reversals. Walters did a, a cool reversal into the sh- into a sharpshooter that got a good pop. Um and I like, you know, Rave rolls to the outside, but he's out of rope breaks, so they roll all the way to the floor, but Walters keeps the sharpshooter on on the outside. Um and like I like that like Rave to get out, he climbs up the guardrail and they basically <laughs> fall down, but Walters won't release it. And and that's when uh yeah, Walters gets the win. Um you know, I, I I just thought it was it was clever. They were good sequences. I agree with you about the heel stuff, but I also just like the way they built to the finish. Um you're right, Walters you don't know, needed a change and they were going to give him one as the next show but um i thought they did a good job with this match
0: yeah um i had no problems with it but I, yeah i can see i think those are the kind of matches where we usually where you know i feel like when i like something more than you it's often like just a really dumb sloppy spot fest I'll like a little more than you and for you it's more like Matt, something with like a lot of good, solid matte wrestling, and not that I don't like that stuff. I like that stuff quite a bit, but I feel like that's the kind of match where, or just really solid, good, like kind of straightforward wrestling. Maybe sometimes I give it a little lower, but yeah, definitely a, a decent match. And um, next, we cut to a clip of the last. Oh, I just wanted to mention first. Uh, I forgot. I, I want to point out all these weird. This is one of the lower intensity fan interactions, but after the match walters flips off and he really jaws with one fan who is daring walters to hit him and again i felt like that's not a great sign especially because walters was like really getting into it with this fan and like again he's supposed to be i think a baby face at this point they also they also lingered on it way too long yeah and again that's another one of those double dv type things where it felt like most uh, standard ring of honor shows they they you don't see a second of that instead they show like every second of that here um so next, we cut to a clip of the last Ring of Honor match of the Briscoes with a voiceover from Gabe telling us that low-key's post-match kick on that night when he was wrestling, I believe, Jay, might have cost the Briscoes their career. Uh, Gabe's voiceover here really could have used a take-two because he misnames his own show Testing the Limits instead of Testing the Limit. And he has a couple awkward pauses and stutters where... It sounds like he's just kind of making it up as he goes, and it really feels like it wasn't a very long clip. You could have done a take two, but anyway, he, he recaps the the health of them. He says, Mark Briscoe was jumped by the Havana pitbulls after the match in the parking lot, and the, no cameras were there, so we never got to see it. And he says, meanwhile, Jay has post-concussion syndrome from low-key's kick to the head. Uh, Gabe says he hopes one day we'll see the Briscoes back, but for now, it looks like th- looks like they've been forced to retire way too soon. So again, if you want to talk about the attention to detail, like I feel like a lot of wrestling companies when it turned like they were built in the middle of this Briscoe's Rottweiler's feud, a lot of companies when guys just left and wouldn't come back or, you know, in this case Mark got hurt and they decided maybe to do other stuff with their lives for a while, like they would just not tell you and hope you forgot about. It. Uh again, Gabe went to the trouble of actually making a segment being like this is why this feud isn't continuing. This is why, you know, you're not seeing the Briscoes back. Like they, they would go the extra, I wouldn't say mile, but the extra step that some promotions wouldn't to just make sure to dot the I's and cross the T's.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, attention to detail is um, was definitely something that was a strong suit for Gabe's booking, especially at the time.
0: So that brings us to a big match pretty early in the card. The number one contenders match for the Ring of Honor World title. Winner gets the title shot, or do they? Because there is no winner. Austin Aries and Loki go to a 20-minute time limit draw. Matt, 20-minute time limit draw. We can talk about just the weirdness of that booking, but I guess I would say probably the larger, more interesting, although that's interesting, but the larger issue is austin aries and key that's a pretty big match um what do you think how do you think it turned out
1: this is the third time limit draw in four shows isn't it um for roh so that's interesting and yeah 20 minutes for a number one contenders match seems too short um remember when they used to have the number one contenders trophy i don't think those matches had 20 minute time limits in fact sometimes they main evented cards um but that's neither here nor there um I thought this match was darn good. I mean I guess you could argue given the two guys that there was so you could you could say it was slightly disappointing, but I you know I really liked it i um you know i I liked that um you know they they never got into like high 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 intensity gear, but it was solid throughout um you know they they did a lot of mat work at the beginning and then it was sort of a lot of Ares picks up the pace. Loki slows down slows down the pace. That was sort of how it went. But Loki uh, introduced some offense on this show that became sort of like a centerpiece of his heel offense for the next year or two. Like the um he does the first ever tree of woe double stomp which the crowd explodes from like they just they just thought it was awesome and it it really is an amazing spot the first time you see it because when you don't see that coming like a guy's in the tree of woe he's trying to get out and a guy just like jumps and stomps on him and knocks him back down like that's a pretty that's a pretty freaking amazing spot and every, I remember the first time I saw that spot it wasn't on this card but it was the first time I saw that spot I was like holy shit <laughs> like that looks devastating and airy sold it like he was dead but he only got it. But he uh, Loki only got a two count because he waited a while um, before he um, before he uh, covered. Um, Ares I thought looked really good in this. His missile tope was just awesome. The one that he did in this match, and um, and Key kind of comes back with like a really killer chop. Um, at one point, uh, Ares does a crucifix bomb, but he blocks it, and Ares turns it into a sunset flip, and Loki comes back with a, what else? An eye poke. Um, uh, Loki, he fights out of another sunset flip attempt with a double stomp. So I, I thought I kind of marked this match as the debut of Loki's like double stomp-centric offense. Um, he, goes, he goes for his top rope double stomp, but Ares moves. Um, um, and um, you know, Loki hits another eye poke, but Ares comes back with like a really impactful sidewalk slam, does his power elbow combo. Um, Loki does an inverted atomic drop and Loki charges at Ares, but Ares catches him with a spinning forearm, grabs Key's head, jumps over the top rope, clotheslining Loki's neck on the top. Um, then Ares goes for a quebrada, Key gets his feet up, he does a bridging German suplex for two. Aries goes for the 450, but Key gets his knees up and gets a two count. And what I liked about this is, at this point, the ring announcer announces that there is one minute remaining in the match. So like you could actually get that sense of urgency for the last minute, as opposed to in some of these other matches. Um, so Aries uh, was up in the... Key got him up in the crush rest position. Aries reversed it into the crucifix bomb, the refs counting down from 30 seconds, and Aries, at that point, he's taking his time, which I didn't really like, but he hits the 450, the ref counts two, but as he counts three, the bell rings, so the time limit is up and the match is a draw. Um, I, um, I, I don't love when the finish is too perfect like that, like the, the bell rings right as the referee's about to count three. That's a little bit too cute for me. But I really enjoyed the match I thought that you know they're both good wrestlers and they both had they, honestly they both had good performances you know you felt like after watching it they could do more and they could do better I don't think they ever totally get to but I thought this was I thought this was good
0: um I, I this match i I like this match if I had to give it a rating I'd probably give it like three and a half stars maybe give or take but like I, think I, thought, fair. It was a, I thought it was like a really interesting match because I think a lot of the shows we've been talking about like heel low key and how different he is from his like 2002 face low key run where he's really pared down his offense and like heel low key is about like, he's not going to give you everything that 2002 face low key was. That's not his character. He's, you know, 2002 low key gives you all this fast paced matches that are dense with action with lots of flashy state of the art offense. 2000 low key, 2004 low key isn't going to give you everything he can do. He's going to do some things, but he's not going to give you everything. And I think like a great kind of microcosm, something that sums that up. Is there an exchange where, um, Ares is starting like this back and forth chop battle and you think, Oh, they're really going to go to town and low key just cuts them off with an eye poke. And you know, like 2002 low key does the chop battle 2004 low key does the eye poke. And some people are going to really hate that. Um I felt like the first 7 minutes were pretty slow like it was a lot of low key body scissors and a lot of stuff on the mat and in fact like the first couple minutes especially like there's a lot of stalling and looking to the crowd like I think after those first 7 minutes if I had asked if I had told someone that was watching this match with me like these guys are going to a draw the people would probably say, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, this is going to be, like, a 30-minute or 60-minute draw. And I I would have to tell them, no, like, this is going to a 20-minute draw because they were wrestling in the first seven minutes. Like, they had hours of time to go on this. But I felt like after that, they fit a really good pace where this was probably the most high-impact offense that low-key has had in this heel run. Like, they do a good job of low is Definitely, like you said, there's this – flow of Ares makes a comeback and then low-key slows it back down. He keeps working over the midsection. He does stuff like body scissors and then Ares comes back. But like you said, even though this isn't the first time we've seen low-key do the double stomp, I think this is the match, like you said, at least in Ring of Honor where he really establishes that like He's the double stomp guy now because he does the tree of double, the tree of woe double stomp. Like you say, gets a huge reaction. He tries to do just his top rope one we've seen before, which is his finisher at this time. And Ares avoids it. And he even does one, I think, where Ares is doing some kind of like sunset flip type thing. And he just does that one where he stops the guy from like flipping him over and just puts his hand on his chest and then jumps and double stomps right from the mat to the chest. So you get basically three variations attempted or executed here and. I felt like this match was really good in that I I liked how these two played off each other. Like, I think both guys have really good, snappy, like, snug, high-impact offense, and I felt like a lot of times low-key, he just, not even because he intends it, like, it can be easy to get eaten up a bit by low-key, but I felt like... Matches like this are really cool where you got a guy that will kind of give as good as he gets to to low key. And I felt like there was a couple points in this match where like Ares is going for something and low key's just kinda of like, no, like he's not gonna do it, or like he's not taking him seriously. And then Ares will hit the move anyway, and then Low Key will sell. Like there was a little bit of like Low key's not respecting this guy enough. And I felt like the whole way they worked the match, it made um aries really feel like the underdog without making it, it was like a different kind of underdog is than jay lethal matches like jay lethal matches not tonight but of a lot of matches of this era he sells and sells and sells and then he makes a comeback at the end whether he wins or loses and that's a great way of doing things but there's a different way and i don't know if it's i don't think it's better or worse where again going back to what you said like Ares makes a little comeback, Loki slows it down, Ares fights out of it where he's kind of fighting the whole way through. And it, and it made Ares, it feels like an underdog where you're starting to get sympathy for him, which I feel is kind of an important in a heel-heel match to get sympathy on somebody. But you never feel like you, you never feel like it like, like when you're watching a Jay Lethal match where, like, oh, Ares is just like three levels below this guy, and he's just like he's he's a fighter, but man, he's in there tough. Like Ares is never on defense long enough where you just feel like he's like a level below low key and yeah, just a lot of really cool moments. I thought low keys, midsection work, Aries selling wasn't the greatest of it, but I thought his midsection work was really good. I, um, that, that one moment where Aries goes for the lion salt, but key gets his feet up like Aries took it. Like it just almost impaled him. Like it looked really gnarly. like, key hits kicks aries and really hard in the back at one point aries hits a really hard loud sounding like spinning forearm to key like going back to that point where they're i think like their offense really much is up well so then the finish like you said um i kind of disagree completely about the finish in the sense of um so for those who don't know like like matt basically said it but just to recap um there's no time keys until the final minute bobby cruz does says you know one minute left and at that point i felt like aries especially was very lackadaisical like he wasn't really showing a sense of urgency and then that final 10 seconds even then he's kind of climbing up slowly to do the 450 but he hits the 450 with four seconds left the ref is right in position and they do the one two and loki kicks out at like 2.9 right before like the last second and it's I actually thought that was really – even though I know what you're saying, it's really kind of fakey feeling like to have it timed that perfectly. I just really admired how perfect the timing was except this is what I didn't like about it. I felt like the real finish that it should have been should have been Ares hits the 450 with like three seconds left instead of four. The ref counts the two and then time limit expires and you don't know if low-key would have kicked out or not because that way – low Ares still has it almost is like Ares won. you can still give him that almost that vibe that he won without having to have Loki lose but instead like you know low-key kicks out of the 450 which is, is you know it takes a little of the drama away i feel like i feel like you could have had an even cooler finish if you just delayed everything one second but
1: yeah. um I, agree. I i i pretty much uh you know like i said i don't like the contrivance but i think you're right that that would have been a little better if you're gonna do it that way
0: so I guess we should, again, just talk about the booking of this. This is a number one contenders match. And I guess there's two things we should talk about that are weird about. This. First off, we talked about a little bit off, this, off the bat, but like a 20-minute draw for a number one contenders match. So to go into what you were saying earlier, a couple of shows ago we had a 15-minute draw between – um Nigel McGinnis and Chad Collier, even though there's lots of undercard met, well, not lots, but a fair number of matches in ring of honor on the undercard that have gone longer than 15 minutes. Then we get the 60 minute world title draws. I can understand those 60 minutes world title. That makes sense sometimes, but then this 20 minutes for a number one contender match, Matt, I went into cage match just to confirm something. It's either two or three shows after this one, one of the third anniversary show tours. There are two matches on that card Alex Shelley versus CM Punk and Jimmy Ray versus A.G. Styles, neither for a title or number one contendership. They both go over 20 minutes. Hell, fucking low-key Brian Danielson on the very next show, which isn't for a title or number one contendership, goes a, a few, not very much, but like a little bit over 20 minutes. So it just feels so arbitrary. Like, I realize on a card like this you didn't want to go that long, but then it goes to my second thing, which I'm going to ask you, which is, why do you think, knowing that Ares is getting the world title shot on the next show, knowing that you know he, he's going to win the world title, knowing that, yes, they do do a low-key Ares rematch, but it's not for a long time, like relatively long time, I guess. Um, why do you do a time limit draw? Like uh, th- These are my only two thoughts, and then I'll just give it to you, which is th- my, th- my two theories are – you have to remember – Loki left Ring of Honor last year and the idea was Ring of Honor was going to wrap up Loki's run and they want him to lose to Homicide. Their side of the story, which they gave in the newsletters, is that Loki agreed and then later on he changed his mindset. I want to do like a 15-minute draw and Ring of Honor said, no, fuck no, we're not doing that. And then they just said, you know, Loki will never be back and we can't come to an agreement. So my feeling is knowing that. They either Loki wouldn't lose to Ares and they still wanted this match anyway, or they didn't, they didn't even trust Loki to ask him if he'd lose because otherwise I don't get why you tooth this finish.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. I think Loki did. You know, they, I think, I don't even think they asked him, honestly. I think they were just like, when they booked the match, they probably planned on doing that finish. I think they were like, well, Loki doesn't like to lose. We want to keep him strong anyway because we do eventually want to get to that match, even though they kind of reported that they didn't. I'm sure, like, the way they built it up, I'm sure they did of Loki against Joe at some point and Loki for the title at some point, um, in a, in a title rematch. But also, um, yeah, they, but they still want to do the match. They figured they didn't have other guys that made sense for these two to wrestle on this show. They wanted to get Ares to the point where he was able to, you know, have the title shot against Joe at final battle. Um, and they thought it would be a good match, and they were just like – and also, this was during an era where Gabe was trying to be cute with finishes. Between the time limit draws on the other shows, between the, the count-out finish on this show, he's clearly trying to just like be creative with finishes, and this was just another example. I think he just didn't think it would be a big deal.
0: And – um Uh, it's really interesting the booking because clearly i don't know when gabe decided that aries was going to be the world the next the guy to beat joe and be the next world champion but if you look at this second half of the year you know gabe really put in some work to have aries win or at least look really good against basically every top name that wasn't homicide before he faced joe because you know he has the finals and testing the limit with Danielson, where he loses, but gets that's his big breakout match. Then he beats Danielson at, at testing the limit in the rematch. You know he loses to Punk, but then he wins the rematch against Punk. And now here, even low key, you know he gets a draw, which for a lot of guys, it's about as good as you can get with low key. And uh, you know they really Gabe basically like you know put him over almost everybody but Homicide before he got to Aries. Um,
1: yeah, I mean they they definitely. It definitely seemed like there were at least a few months where Gabe knew that Aries was going to be the guy...
0: So, uh, I thought this was an interesting quote knowing what's coming on the next show. Mike Johnson wrote, Another performer you can expect a big push for in the next few months is Austin Aries, who is being set up as a top level guy in the company after his bouts with CM Punk, Loki, and Brian Danielson. Aries is in a similar position to where AJ Styles was in 2002, in that he'll likely break out in a huge way, barring industry, in 2005. And I believe at this same time, um, The Observer reports something similar, like expect Austin Aries to get a big push in 2005 in Ring of Honor. So clearly they were telling people that Aries is going to get a big push, which is interesting because it's kind of tipping their hand a little. I mean, it was still a shock, so I don't think it really tipped the hand. But I wouldn't have wanted to say that at all at this point. If I knew what was coming, I would be like, yeah, Ares, you know, he's a good guy. We'll see what happens. But like apparently they were just telling everybody like, yeah, Ares, we're going to push this guy to the moon.
1: Well, maybe they thought it was like a good misdirection. Like, oh, he's going to get a big push in 2005, which means that like the world title shot that he loses will be the beginning of him being in that rung. You know, as a, and like that's like and they're almost like, oh, you know, we're hiding it in plain sight that he's going to actually <laughs> win the title here yeah actually actually that that
0: probably is what it was that'd be definitely like three definitely like interesting kind of mental chess to to think that deep like oh they'll think he's gonna get like a big world title in you know october 2005 and they won't realize he's booked to win it next show but well he's well this um, is
1: gabe sapolsky we're talking about the chess master
0: <laughs> everyone knows that very well-known nickname for gabe <laughs> sapolsky, the chess master um after the match, the crowd chants for five more minutes and Gary Michael Capetta comes out in a classic dad sweater. I love Gary's sweaters. Always excited to see what he's decided to put on this uh, this show. Now that we uh, all
1: know how problematic Bill Cosby is and what a what a monster he turned out to be, Gary Michael Capetta is now the king of
0: sweaters. Yeah, and instead of Cosby sweater, we now have to say it's a Capetta sweater. Uh-huh. A uh, Capetta. <laughs> Uh, Gary says he was sent out there by ring of honor management, but then I love this. He then, he actually like, he has to be honest. He says, actually, I was standing there with Gabe and we were watching the match. So, uh, he tries to act all officially. So he's like, yeah, you guys all know this. I was just the Gabe over there. And, um, Gary says the ruling is this match will continue for five more minutes. If the fans want it, the crowd gets super loud and excited. We get a much louder, five more minutes chant that we got right when the draw originally happened. Uh, key grabs the mic, Gave on commentary at this point says nothing good ever comes when he grabs the mic, which I thought was a nice cute little wink to people that knew that he had um, that comment edited out at ring of honor completion where ring of Honor reborn completion, where he had that line about Rob Feinstein touching little boys that they had to like mute out. So I thought that was a nice little acknowledgement of that. Maybe, Maybe I'm reading in, you know what, Matt, he's the chess master. I'm sure he meant that line on purpose. Um, Key calls Ares a boy at this point, and he says he, – he asks the crowd, do they want to see five more minutes? Uh, Key asks Ares, does he want five more minutes? He asks the ref, does he want five more minutes? They all want it. Key says he signed off on a 20-minute match, and so none of you get a damn thing. He leaves to booze. He gets in a fan's face on the way out. Again, more fan confrontation. And then once Key is gone, Ares gets a little round of applause. Um, reading the notes here um, – Dave Meltzer wrote from the live reports, crowd hated this. He's talking about the finish, not the whole match, uh, just the, 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 the draw not continuing. And he goes, some blamed it for killing the next match where Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero kept the tag titles over Nigel McGuinness and Chad Collier in a good match with no crowd reaction. So, um, Matt, I'll get to my opinion on that in just a minute, but moving on actually right now, because the next match ring of honor tag title match, the Havana pit balls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero defeated Chad Collier and Nigel McGuinness in 16 minutes 25 seconds when Reyes pinned uh, Collier after they hit the demolition decapitation style knee drop. So, Matt, um, about halfway through this match, I was thinking I was gonna give this like above average or good, like a three star three and a quarter I, I was enjoying it decently it still had a lot of the vibe i've come negative i've come to negatively associate with pitbulls matches that feeling that they're not really about anything that something's kind of missing that they're almost just spamming the same few moves over and over like it's a video game but it's mostly um chad collier and nigel mcginnis in control and i like both those guys so it's fun watching them do stuff and then the Havana Pitbulls isolate Nigel McGuinness, and it is one of the most heatless Ring of Hunter matches I've ever heard. I've never heard, at certain points in this match, it, the crowd is just 750 people fucking silent. No one gives a shit. Um, apart from one really great sequence during the Heat segment where... um Nigel does the headstand and Rocky Romero is confused and he runs the ropes trying to like knock off Nigel's balance and stuff but ends up getting trapped anyway apart from that it's the pitbulls doing tagging in and out and doing the most basic bland offense with no real focus. So much of Reyes' offense in particular seems to be either just clubbing forms to the back, stiff kicks to the midsection or random attempts at an arm bar and just rinse, wash and repeat those three things. There's no charisma. They're not really using selling and psychology to tell a story. They have a few cool spots, but even there they're not to the standards of a lot of other acts of ring of honor. And the crowd is just again, dead. And then, When I could – when I was already getting annoyed to it with this, Matt, Nigel, finally after a few minutes of being isolated, he goes to make the hot tag. And how does he finally break the control and make a hot tag? He just trips Ricky Reyes by the leg and walks over and makes the tag. Like there is no huge fight comeback, you know, no big reversal. It's just like, oh, it's time to make a hot tag. He trips a leg. He tags. And as a result – we get one of the most heatless hot tags I have ever heard. And no payoff, no imagination. That That's the thing I would say about this. For the second half of this match, there is no imagination other than that cool headstand sequence. And then, again, the finishing sequence, it's fine. It's nothing special. We get a little interference from Julius Smokes distracting Collier where that gets him to break his um, Texas Cloverly finisher and go dress him on the apron, and then they end up losing. It's just... It's an average match, but I am so tired of average Havana Pit Bulls matches. They're getting so many opportunities. They have so many good opponents. They're getting so much ring time, like just the lengths of their matches are long. And they get they get so little out of so much that they're given. It's just, I'm I'm done with the Pit Bulls, Matt. I'm done with them.
1: I um I feel you like I I I I I think I mostly agree with your points. I just didn't feel it as strongly as you, if that makes yeah. sense. Like, I definitely agree that when Nigel and Collier were working on on offense and stuff, it was very fun, and the pit bulls were con- considerably less fun, and the match you know got a lot less interesting. I definitely thought they did not do enough to build to that Collier tag late in the match for sure but i did think there were some cool moves throughout and i thought it was a it was a it was a it was an okay match it was a it was a solid match i would say um you know the pitbulls i don't think they've been good i don't understand why they've got they've gotten so much time with the tag team titles at this point when there are other better teams but i don't hate them to the extent that that you did at this point um you know, I, I do think that like Collier and Romero had good chemistry. Like they were kind of playing off that match. They had at death before dishonor. And I thought that was good. Um, I also like Punk talking about Collier. He said, Collier's fun to hang out with because he'll quote, turn around and threaten to slug a grandma. So apparently this is what CM Punk thinks is fun is people threatening to beat up old ladies. Um, I guess grandmas don't have to be old, right? You could be a grandma at like 40. Um, but um yeah, you know, but there were some, like I said, there were some fun spots. Um, McGinnis grabs a leg, Collier grabs an arm, and they move, like, to the next limb and go all the way around and just, like, do, like, holds and stuff on them. And Punk calls it a technical wrestling version of the Garfin Stomp, which <laughs> I think is a good way to describe it. And, like, as I was watching this, I'm like, you know, McGinnis and
0: Collier could have been a damn good team because yeah. they already had, like, good good stuff going with the two of them. Um, I, I even like like Collier has like I, I forgot to mention that part where where um Nigel does the headstand and like Romero's trying to like break it up by running the ropes and upsetting his balance and then Collier runs on the apron and like holds on to him like yeah. they, like they have like cute little chemistry like that already yeah I
1: agree. Um, and speaking of the headstand thing, um, you know, you said Romero won't fall for it. He tries shaking the ropes, but that won't work, and he just waits. And eventually Nigel drops down, but then goes back up, and that's when he suckers Romero in and hits the Tower of London, which at the time Gabe just called, oh, high impact. So apparently, He that's still doesn't have
0: made. a name for it.
1: Yes. Um, 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 and um, Collier did not do the toilet flush, as far as I could tell in this match, um, <laughs> or at least it wasn't called – There was also another funny, um, call late in the match. Um, while, um, while Nigel's on the floor, um, Romero hits like a big off the apron, like a big, like running, like almost like crotch splash, like Fez press thing. And Gabe goes, he gives McGinnis the chair. So I'm like, oh, I guess it's the chair. I guess that's what it's called. (laughs) I I didn't know that. Um. But um but yeah no I I agree with you about like you know that the pitbulls sucked the life out of the match but I thought that Nigel and Collier gave enough life in that it was it was I didn't dislike it I guess is what I would say um I think it had enough good points that I generally had a net positive opinion about the match
0: I I will save my larger I think I will have an opportunity of my larger pitbulls rent on the next show I don't I don't know if I hate them, but I, I, I would say I haven't been more disappointed in an act in Ring of Honor and our rewatch. Like the gulf between what everyone praised them from the newsletters to their fellow wrestlers to fans online to how they're booked and what I actually get. Like, Matt, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, well, you know, we've, we've been relatively close together on our pins of the pit bulls like matches. But I think thinking about that, like. How many Pitbulls matches – forget how good they are. How many Pitbulls matches have you watched in Ring of Honor where you can come away going they were the more entertaining part of that match? Like to me almost every time I watch one of their matches, no matter what I feel about I go like – the other team was the more entertaining part of the match.
1: No, I would agree with that. I think I'm I'm reticent to insult them too much because I like the guys individually, especially you know Romero's obviously had a good career, you know. But I well, oh, um, that's
0: the other thing. Romero's great; like he's been great for years. Like that's a part of what makes me so frustrated and like confused because like they they've both done stuff I've liked after this, you know.
1: Yeah. No, I get I get what you're saying. But, and you know, and, and you said the one the one match where Romero teamed with homicide, you know, he looked a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> um And the Reyes singles match against Samoa Joe was a lot better than any of the Pitbull's performances.
0: I, I also thought it was interesting on commentary, they really sold this uh, the um the challenger's hard because Punk called Chad Collier the most underrated guy in the Ring of Honor roster, which Punk, you know, usually when he makes comments like that, he's pretty, seems pretty genuine, like when he goes out of his way like that for someone. And Gabe called Nigel the fastest rising star in Ring of Honor. So they were heaping a bunch of praise on those guys. And I guess the one spot I also forgot to mention is Chad Collier does a tope and he snags his legs on the ropes and like, lucky he didn't like, really hurt himself bad and this was the match that really confirmed to me that crash and burn i suspected it before but clearly that is gabe's line. he only uses for legit botches because he just screams crash and burn and it's it's his code for the botch in case he didn't see that it was a botch but um after the match a ringside fan moons julius smokes we actually see the guy's ass oh shit I, i
1: don't know if i was looking away for a second i did not notice that i gotta go back it, it ha- I gotta go back and see like this guy. I gotta go back and
0: see this guy's ass. When I'm talking about fan interactions, this fan jaws with Smokes for a fair bit of time, and then he actually mo- and we see ass. He moons him, and then Smokes has to be held back along with his candy cane and
1: i i noticed, I noticed was,
0: smokes like jerking off the candy cane that part i definitely <laughs> noticed he did that a few times tonight um, i thought that was great because like we've seen him before holding a baseball bat and jerking that off so i love the idea that like this is the christmas version like even though it's the holiday season if he has something long and thin he's gonna jerk it off so i, I thought that was funny um i'm a child but uh-huh. next up it is time for the great debate. That is what they sold this – so bear, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but bear in mind they sold this segment as a great debate. The, that was – I think they plugged it on the website. They hyped it up. It's, I think when they, when they did the announcement on the last show, this is going to be the great managerial debate. So Jim Cornette is back in Ring of Honor. First time in a long time, he walks to the ring, racket in hand. He play he's playing to the crowd. He seems happy as a clam. He's real baby face energy to start off with. And the first thing he said he says is he asks someone to kick Vince Russo's ass for some reason I couldn't make out, and I just wrote because of course that's the first thing Jim Cornette says. Uh, Cornette notes that it's is, been a is huge-
1: it, Isn't it funny how little has changed in sixteen years?
0: <laughs> I-, I was gonna say that um. Uh, That, uh, like, Vince Russo, what this made me realize is that, like, Vince Russo should be sending, like, Christmas cards to Kenny Omega and Joey Janelle because, like, I, I feel like Cornette talks less about Vince Russo now, but for, like, 15 years, that was where most of Cornette's anger was aimed at, and I feel like the AEW guys have basically taken a lot of the, the heat away from Russo. But, but uh, it
1: does feel like the AE, like the hate of the AEW guys is at least a little bit shtick, while the hate yes. of Russo is like 100% genuine.
0: I think even that one, I think it was genuine, but over time it probably became shtick when he realized that he could make money off of it. True. I think with Cornette, probably all of his hatred to some level is shtick, and some level is real. Like I think he takes things he really is annoyed by and then he just keeps playing it up until he can sell a t-shirt to you because as we recently learned he is apparently making a lot of money selling t-shirts
1: i think the russo stuff that was more personal because they worked together and like had issues in that capacity but yes you're right
0: no yeah i agree yeah that because like i don't think anyone in AEW has done something like for example like he was i know jim Cornette was really mad about like vince russo booking wcw an angle that made fun of jim ross's bell's palsy so like yeah, that would make it more personal than anything AEW has done to him, I think. So or said about him, I mean. Right. Um. Anyway, Cornette notes that it's been a year since the last time he was here. I guess in the city, and you could hear at this point a fan loudly scream, "What's up with that?" Which I, I think this one <laughs> fan was really, really like he he wanted answers. That you know, we needed Gary Michael Capetta to come back out and get the answers for this one. But um, that
1: reminds me of like an Andy Samberg SNL bit, right? That song, like. I don't even remember what like – but he was talking about like like bad things happening in the world and he was like, what's up with that? <laughs> God, I got to find that bit again.
0: Um, so Cornette says he's glad to be here. He says – he said, and he's glad to see everyone. But he says there's one reason that got him to return to Ring of Honor. He says he challenged Ring of Honor to fulfill the one remaining goal he had in his wrestling career. He wanted to stand in the ring with the only person who has ever stood in his way of being proclaimed the greatest wrestling manager of all time. Jim says that he has a lot of respect for Bobby Heenan. He patterned himself after Bobby Heenan, and he considers him a legend. And then he just introduces Bobby Heenan, and Bobby Heenan gets a big reaction – uh, Bobby Heenan comes out and he's basically dressed in an all-leather suit with a black shirt and a black tie, which is – it's like leather pants, leather jacket, then black shirt and black and white tie and it, it, it's a look, man. I'll put it that <laughs> yeah.
1: way. Did, 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 did Bobby Heenan ever rock leather pants
0: in the, uh, in the 80s? Uh, I don't know. To what this looked like to me is like if a fifteen—if you told like a fifteen-year-old you've got to dress up for a wedding and mom's not gonna like help you choose your outfit, like this is what a fifteen-year-old would pick. Like, well, leather's cool oh, and black everything, you know. Like, you uh,
1: know, he, he, he was Bono as the Fly,
0: <laughs> the original Fly, Bobby Heenan. You know, we've we've come up with two secret histories between Chessmaster Gabe Sapolsky and the original Fly Bobby Heenan, That's but right. um. Crowd doesn't chant Original Fly, unfortunately. They chant Bobby and then Weasel. Um, Someone throws a streamer in the ring because we were talking before the show, like, this was the era in Ring of Honor where the streamers really started to get big and it felt like a lot of shows you would see a fan that would just get tired of waiting for the main event and they would just decide to throw a streamer in during a random match. We're like, hey, this is how I'm going to express my excitement. One what, random streamer.
1: They were like, if I have a heart attack before the end of the show, I'm not going to get to throw these streamers so I might as well throw them while I still have the chance.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um... Coronet uh, says, Ring of Honor fans respect legends. He tells Bobby that he's been a fan of his since he watched them at the age of nine. He said, I watched you getting tossed around by Dick the Bruiser. Uh, Jim again says that he patterned himself after Heenan. And he says he's a fan of Bobby and he shakes his hand. Bobby responds. He says that he's a fan of Jim's. And he says something to a fan. And at ringside at this point that I can't understand. And he calls him a moron, which gets a big laugh uh bobby asks the crowd to excuse his speech because he's recovering from cancer at this point bobby earnestly puts over how much the fans have always meant to him and he puts over ring of honor as one hell of an organization uh he then wishes that he could manage again one more time but he's had a great life and he thanks the fans for everything uh, he goes to leave very quickly so th- this this speech from he did not take very long Cornet asks him to get back in the ring Quirant says he has another thing to say to Bobby, and he notes that he did some managing in Ring of Honor, and he got his beak wet managing again here in Ring of Honor, and he feels like Ring of Honor is his home for him right now as a manager. He says, so many fans over the years have come to him, and they've complimented him, but they've always ended the compliment by saying he reminds them of Bobby Heenan. Uh, corn at this point he starts getting angry he really like flips an emotional switch where he goes from real good face energy to you can tell getting a little more sinister and angry he completely changes his vocal tone at this point he says he's heard for tw- he's heard that for 22 years and he's getting sick of it he tells the crowd to bear with him for a damn minute a damn second like he just says that to the crowd and he gets really li- like some real booze and all he does is he says bear mi- with me for a damn second and he gets like booze at this point. Uh, Jim says that after 22 years of being compared to Bobby, of being beneath Heenan, of hearing people tell him that he's great, but he's not as great as Bobby Heenan, he wants to ask a question to Bobby face to face. Uh, Jim says Vince couldn't kill Bobby. WCW couldn't kill him. Cancer couldn't kill him. So what the hell is it going to take to get Bobby the hell out of his ring? Jim wants him to roll over and go home, drop dead, turn to dust, anything that lets Cornette be the guy and stop being compared to Heenan. Cornette says Heenan doesn't have the good decency to die and get it over with. Uh, Heenan wants to know what the what's the matter with Jim. He has no problem with Jim. Jim then says, Did you ha- did you have throat cancer or ear cancer? You just heard what's wrong with me. Quirin uh, asks him again, what will it take for Heenan to fade into the sunset like an old gunfighter? Coron asks if it's going to have to get rough. At this point, Cornet heals on the fans for shaking his hands after picking their noses, but mostly for the fact that they always tell him that he's second best to Heenan. Quirin asks Heenan yet again, what's going to take to get him out of his Ring of Honor ring? Heenan says he'll never leave this business and says now that Ring of Honor is here, he might stay till he's 155. Big Bobby Chan at this point. Cornett takes off his jacket and says, if this was any other two people, this is where a wrestling angle might start. Maybe someone would get busted open. Jim says he's not going to hit Bobby with a racket. He's not going to make him bleed. He says, and then at this point we see Roderick Strong and Jack Evans come to the ring, and Cornett then just says, that's what they're here for. They grab Heenan, but almost immediately, Jimmy Jacobs and a chair-wielding Colt Cabana chase them away to a big pop. Heenan takes off his jacket, and he says, if Cornett thinks he's the greatest manager, he can take his two goons. Bobby will take these two guys, and they can manage opposite sides of a match tonight. Cornett accepts and says, "Cornett will rule." Uh, Bobby Heenan will rule the day he came to Ring of Honor. Bobby says he'll see them later, Punk. So, Matt, um, I thought this was Cornette's best promo by far in Ring of Honor. I thought he did a really good thing of going from like real earnest babyface to real like angry bitter heel. He got a good heel heat. I felt like he was a very unselfish promo where um, he really. Like, like he framed everything for, he framed everything as Heenan's better than me, and knowing what the finish of the match is going to be, like he really, like the whole point of this night is that you come away thinking that Bobby Heenan's the greatest and Cornet is second greatest. So he, you know, some people that doesn't seem like a huge deal, but I feel like some people in wrestling would have more of an ego where they wouldn't even want to do a storyline like this. Um, The one thing I thought I stood out was this was billed as a great debate. It was not a debate at all. And it really did feel like Cornette was doing an angle and Bobby Heenan was more like, not really, not that he wasn't into it, but more like Bobby Heenan didn't feel like he was here to cut a promo and be like a big, into a big wrestling angle. More like he was legit there just to really graciously accept applause from the fans and tell them like, I'm glad to be here and see you guys. And like when Cornette was starting to like cut that really heavy promo, like saying, you know, I wish you would die and stuff like that, and all Heen's comeback is is like, what's your problem? And even when Cornette's like, I just told you what my problem is, Keenan again is like, I don't know what your problem is. Like, Keenan that that he I don't know, he just didn't seem to be on the same page as Cornette, I would say.
1: Um I see what you're saying, but I don't really Think it was a problem, honestly.
0: Like I, well, um, and I, I don't blame Bobby. And I think this segment was still really good, but I just feel like Bobby. He almost felt like he wasn't there. Like I, I, I just felt like, especially for something that build as a great managerial debate. I feel like Bobby Heenan didn't really come prepared for a debate and didn't really want to have a debate. He just wanted to show up, you know, which is cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone there was like, man, I can't wait for this debate. You know, I think that they were like, no, I want to see, you know, Bobby Heenan and Jim Cornette together. Like, that's cool. And considering what they did in the match, which we'll get to later, like, I think it was far, it was plenty sufficient. You know, Bobby Heenan wasn't, you know, he was recovered from, you know, his initial battle with cancer, but still not, you know, fully, you know, fully healthy. You know, he couldn't really, you know, speak in the way that he always wanted to. You know, he also never really had a lot of experience playing a babyface character. Um that's another thing. Um, you know, I think he was sort of just let Cornette have the moment. And as far as Cornette goes, you know, I think Cornette, you can, you can accuse him of a lot of things, but being a selfish performer is not one of them. He was yeah. always willing to make himself look like the butt of all the jokes to be, to, you know, to be the fool, you know, like the loser. Like, so I, he never had a problem with that. Um, the one thing that I, that I maybe thought was weird, I mean, not a big deal at all, but just like that generation next is suddenly like, you know, doing, Cornette's dirty work for him just because like they're you know Cornett's an old dude too and they're not usually on board with just like you know aligning with them but again that's a very minor a minor thing these segments are always better for the live crowd than they are on dvd because they're just you know special appearances kind of but i think this one held up on tape better than i expected 16 years later i think it still felt like a special moment and i thought it was nice to see
0: yeah, and I, I think there is some uh, – first of all, I thought that's a great point I didn't think of about Generation Next. You can kind of say, well, Generation is all about taking guys' spots. But then like you said, Generation Next generally, one of their big things has been attacking veterans. So it's kind of – and it also just the combination of like Jack Evans and, and Jim Cornette or even just Jim Cornette and Generation Next to, in general, like it does feel like a bit of a clash. So I, I completely get what you're saying. But I, I think one thing that I really enjoyed with this, and I think it's something that Gabe liked doing, is he liked booking like what I call like wrestling trivial pursuit moments in the sense where moments like oh, it's the first ever meeting between um, Jim Cornette and Bobby Heenan, or like on the Midnight Express reunion show where Gabe really hyped that you know it's the first time all three members of the Midnight Express have been with Cornette on the same side together on a show, you know, like. Those are the kind of moments I I call Trivial Pursuit moments because they're not like really obvious things, but they're the kind of things you would see as a question on Trivial Pursuit where you go, oh, I didn't really think of that. Oh, that is kind of a neat moment. And I think Gabe really liked when you could have these little like historical moments that aren't necessarily going to sell like thousands of tickets, but they are kind of like, oh, that'll get some mentions for people that are like wrestling nerds. Like, oh, it is cool that – Bobby Heenan and Jim Corn have never been face-to-face like this before, and Ring of Honor is the company that did it, you know? So I, I think that still carries some weight, too. Agreed. Um, so it's intermission – we go, uh, backstage where Gary Michael Capetta is joined by the embassy. Gary says, before the end of the night, we're going to find out who gets the title shot coming out of the Aries key match. Uh, Nana says, Lethal's win tonight was a fluke. He says, the weapon he has for Jay at final battle is bigger than the one he had today. Nana says, next time that they're going, they're in the ring with John Walters, his lawyers are going to be there to make sure that he and the Outcast Killers can be at ringside. And then meanwhile, in the background, the killers are all excited because they've won two matches in a row. Nana doesn't care. He sends them to prepare his bath at the Hilton before he leaves to have steak with Jimmy Raven. I just was left thinking, like, if you want a hot bath, you should not be saying to make your bath now if you're going out for steak, because yeah. that yeah. bath's going to be cold by the time you're done eating that steak.
1: Yeah, I, yeah that's true. And I, 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 I just, I, every, I love everything Nana says is funny, and Like, he was like talking, he tells him to go run their bathwater and then he goes, the finest oils and soaps in Ghana. And it's just like, like, just like, like that. He's just so proud of the, the the quality of the soap in Ghana. (laughs) I just, I just love it so much. And he, he just, he just loves talking up that soap.
0: Yeah, and you're right, like, going back to even him saying shit, like, there's something about, like, anything Nana does, for some reason, is funny, like, even just the thought of him, like, in a fancy hotel, eating a steak with Jimmy Rave, like, for some reason, just the idea of Nana and Rave, like, alone at a table, eating steak at, like, 8 p.m. on a Saturday, like, is really funny to me, like, just...
1: Yeah, oh, man, with oh, well, these Ring of Honor shows, it's more like 1 a.m., but yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Come on, Jim, we've got to find a place that's open at 2 in the morning for steak. Yeah. Um. um <laughs> anyway... Sugar Sean Price is backstage with the heel side of Special K, which would be Lacey, Izzy, Deranged, Cloudy, and a brownie-eating Cheech. Although when I actually when I I think when I watched this, a lot of the people there are eating brownies. And earlier, Cheech was eating brownies at ringside, so he uh, had some brownies. But anyway, uh, Lacey says now they have all the dead weight losers out of Special K. So now that that's happened, she's going to lead them to glory and titles. Derange starts to talk, and Lacey just tells him, "Just shut up." And follow me. So they're still kind of painting Lacey. She's not just the leader of this new unit, but she's kind of a very domineering, shrill, like, you guys are stupid. Just shut up and I'll make sure you're successful.
1: You would think that she'd want to manage people that aren't stupid. But, yeah, Deranged, after she says, follow me, Deranged's like, yeah, man, as long as you supply it. It's like, <laughs> so is she giving them drugs? Because that doesn't – like, is she their drug dealer too? Because that doesn't seem like a recipe for success. <laughs>
0: Hey, they were the tag team champions briefly when they were all high on drugs. And as we've known with Dixie and Angel Dust, what Ray honors taught us is athletes are way more successful when they're getting high all the time.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, so you, maybe you could have Dixie and Angel Dust do a promo where they're like, she was the dope dealer and we were the dopes, if you, rem- <laughs> if you remember that promo that Hawk cut on uh, Draws.
0: Oh no, I don't remember. I just remember the one part of that feud.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. The one the the other part of it. Um right. So, coming back after intermission, we have Trent Acid defeating Jerk Jackson via pinfall in 3 minutes 26 seconds after he hits his implant reverse DDT or Nolte actually calls it a shovel driver this time. Um uh, Matt, I'll give it to you. This is um I guess we should just mention Jerk Jackson is better known as Bobby Fish, and uh, this is not Bobby Fish's first match. I believe Jerk in Ring of Honor. I believe Jerk Jackson worked a uh, a pre-show match on one of like the Do or Die things, Uh, but this is his first. But technically, this is Bobby Fish's first ever main card Ring of Honor show, and he looks dramatically different: long hair, much beefier quite frankly doesn't look as good physically like the short haircut and the mustache was inspired choices he looks a million times better nowadays i'm
1: pretty sure jerk was on another main card um, oh uh, maybe, maybe the, i'm wrong The second anniversary maybe one of those i just we were, I remember us talking about him once before so that's yeah, why maybe i'm wrong yeah so that uh, but but um no but the 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 big story in this match is that the universe exploded because mark nolte and cm punk did commentary together oh um <laughs> you know i have to say um just a, a small aside for the show it's weird that they had Punk do commentary for this show, considering that, like, this was the night of the biggest match of his life, and he's just like, yeah, man, these special K kids are, you know what I mean? Like, it's just.
0: Yeah. And, and to make clear, like, let's just recap the commentary quickly. For, this year, for the last however long of Ring of Honor, it's always been either Nolte and Gabe call the whole show, or Punk and Gabe call the whole show. And this is the only time I can remember it's Gabe and Punk for the first half. And then in the second half, it's Gabe and Nulty, and then for this one match in the middle, it's Mark Nulty and CM Punk, and clearly CM Punk hates Mark Nulty. It is the so weirdest. like why if you if you flew Mark Nulty down, why don't you have him call the whole show? Yeah. Like you I just mean, said, it's it's a huge night for Punk.
1: Yeah, it's it's I mean, I guess they were I think they probably figured out. Oh, is not really great with these undercard matches. But um <laughs> But still, you know, for the for the purposes of this show, you want to make the you don't want to make it so like oh yeah, Punk's spending like half the night just like making jokes about um, about Chad Collier and Allison Danger's Alley, you know, like it's just like whatever. Um, but so but yeah, so Martin Nolte, so Punk immediately starts writing Nolte uh, about Nolte calling him a jerk, about Nolte mispronouncing Colt Cabana, um, and then while when Punk asks why Nolte pronounces people's names wrong, Nolte goes, "What do you mean, DM?" Which I thought was kind of funny. Like the way he said it, very like, he said it in a way that was um, just like very seamless, which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, As far as the match, I mean, who cares, right? But um, uh, Acid, he's introduced as being from South Philly, Japan, which I have not noticed before, but he probably has been. He's smoking a cigarette and is wetter than I've ever seen him. Um, um, You know, he does some cool stuff. You know, I, I do like when Acid does the whole like run into the. Into the guardrail thing on the outside. I always think that's, um, you know, that's pretty good. At one point, Acid at the beginning of the match goes up to a fan in the front row and asks her to kiss his cheek, but then he just plants a big kiss on her lips. And I'm like, man, that better be a plant. (laughs)
0: Because if not,
1: this is, this is the most problematic thing I've ever seen. Um, but so Jackson takes the moment to, to jump him. Then Jerk Jackson sets up a chair at ringside and just throws che- Trent Acid onto it. And it's like, is this just allowed? Like, you're using chairs in random matches that have no issues? Like, that's, that was weird to me. Like, just like, why are they allowed to use chairs? Um, um, so the, the whole match is kind of about how Acid has a bad attitude. Um, and all the commentary is also about how buff Jerk Jackson is, which is just funny, you know, knowing Bobby Fish now. Um, but, um, yeah, Jackson does a standing drop kick on acid on the floor, which was really impressive, especially when he was that size. So Jackson gets like 100% of the offense in the first like four or five minutes until jerk, uh, mix, mix, uh, misses a, uh, 450. Um, uh, and then acid misses a huge Yakuza kick, but then he, he hits it after, uh, some more reversals and acid wins with the sugar driver. Um, it was nothing. Um, the match was nothing, except for just the novel combination of announcers, which was the most memorable part for me. Trent Acid is very wet.
0: So, yeah, when I said earlier during the uh, Flash-Flanagan Weapon of Mass Destruction versus Jay Lethal match, where that was so different because it felt like Flash was being very unselfish and it, he was wrestling more for the, for the long-time established vet, this was more what I was talking about, which is the usual Ring of Honor tryout match, which is – the veteran, in this case, Trent gives Flash. I mean, uh, the the newbie, Jerk Jackson. Basically, the entire match and Jerk Jackson. It's not really a match as much as Jerk Jackson doing like five or six really cool spots that he can do, like the gorilla press onto the chair. The you know he tries the four fifty, even though that's Austin Aries' finisher. Um, you know the stuff you talked about, and then right when it's time to end, Acid just takes back control, hits a couple moves, and it's over. So it, less a match and more just like a kind of a shitty tryout, but it like the action that was there was perfectly fine. I thought it was funny that like Colt, I mean, uh, CM Punk was making fun of how that trend acid looked like a homeless guy. And I felt like when 2004 CM Punk is saying you look like a hobo, like, holy shit, you're in a bad place because like even CM Punk um, in a shooter, he would talk about how he looks like a hobo. So when he's calling you that like, holy crap. But like you mentioned, this match is mostly known for just how uncom like punk clearly, like we've always talked about on these recent shows where it seems like every time punk was doing a commentary on a show with Gabe, he would give him like one or two jabs at Nolte. And uh, we were like, Oh, it seems like he doesn't like Nolte. If you were wondering if that was just stick stick, holy shit. Like very early on, like, Nolte is like, well, you know both these guys pretty well. You know Ass pretty well. Like, Nolte says something like that. And, and Punk immediately, he doesn't, I don't know if he says these exact words, but he's like, he just shuts the down. He's like, no, I don't. Like, he gives him, he doesn't play along with him. He gives him nothing. Like, he, he goes out of his way to make him look like an idiot. And then he brings up, like, again, during the middle of the match, it has nothing to do with the match or what they're talking about. Punk is just like, What's with your your pronunciation of these names? And then Punk goes, "Cult Cabana," John Walter instead of Walters. And then Nalty actually says this. He goes, "The promoter told me it was pronounced that way, and I stopped doing it after my second show." First off, the promoter is Gabe Sapolsky, who does not pronounce it that way. And Gabe Sapolsky is likely, at the time he says that, like three feet away from him in some recording room. Like, he completely tries to throw Gabe under the bus. And I just wrote in my notes, like, nobody is looking good here. <laughs> like, it just, it was so, you could tell, it was just so uncomfortable. And then, to top it all off... um jerk jackson during this match hawks a gigantic loogie at a fan in the front row which again the fan interactions matt they're just i don't know if this was like be shitty to fans night but it was prevalent up and down the card um yes i
1: i i did i i I, now i remember that now that you mention it by the way i remember i remembered the jerk jackson thing he was He was on the second anniversary show, but didn't wrestle. Like, they were, they were pretending that they were going to have a match with Dunn and Marcos, but then Dunn and Marcos did the whole, we're not going to take it anymore thing, and the match never
0: happened. So this was his first,
1: this was his first match on our main card, but not his first appearance.
0: Oh, that makes perfect sense. I'm so glad you figured that out because, yeah, because I'd be wondering, like, why didn't it show up in, like, the k results because I checked just to make sure but, obviously, that explains everything. So, thank God for you. Thank God for you, Matt, for a variety of reasons, but awesome. this is one of the more minor ones. Um, yeah, I,
1: I would agree. Anybody saying, thank God you remembered when Jerk Jackson
0: was on an <laughs> ROH show? What would I do without that? Yes. Um, life-saving. <laughs> we cut to uh, Alice in Danger backstage. She's found the Carnage crew and she wants them to sign her contract for a fight without honor against Moth and Whitmer. They sign eagerly. They're not, like, scared of this match at all. DeVito chomps on a stogie and says that's their kind of fight. Uh, Danger excitedly does a little dance. She's so happy that they've signed. But then DeVito sneaks up behind her while she's dancing and puts an arm around her. Danger's not having any of that I thought Danger's
1: whole thing was that she was going to, like, give them uh, whatever they wanted if they defeated – if they destroyed <laughs> Moth and Whitmer.
0: Well, they haven't done it yet, Matt. And, um, I got it. So at this point, they pull, the carriage crew pull out some money and ask her for a lap dance. Danger refuses and walks off camera, but then quickly walks back in, snatches away the dollar bill, and angrily says, give me that dollar. And then she leaves again, which I thought was a pretty cute little thing. Yeah, that was good. And then, I, bet that then was, De- I bet
1: that was ad-libbed.
0: Yeah, and then DeVito just says, these rats don't know how to respect us, which is – but just
1: a- – Any use of that word is Gross
0: so i also meant when you think about like this whole thing like i love that early on in the show they're like you know alice in danger's like you know i got this contract for uh a, a fight without honor moth and whitmer against the country and i just need the country to sign it. so come on we're gonna find them and it's actually it's, it's like makes you think it's gonna be some crazy argument to get them to sign it or some crazy twist or it's building to something and then the segments literally sign this and they're like okay and, like, that's that's the segment, basically. It's just like, yeah, sure, we want to do this. Like, there's, there, there's like, no drama, actually, to this at all. But... That is funny. Next yes. up, Colt Cabana and Jimmy Jacobs with Bobby Heenan defeated generation next of Jack Evans, Roderick Strong, with Jim Cornette in 17 minutes, 34 seconds, when Cabana pinned... Or Cabana, I'm, I'm getting infected by it. Pinned Evans after a Bobby Heenan tennis racket shot. Um... I thought this was a lot of fun. Uh, I always used to read reviews or like hear people say, oh, like, this old school match, there was a lot of gaga in this match. And sometimes I would kind of know what they meant but not sure. Matt, I can confidently say this match had a lot of gaga in it because the first half of this match was more of just – a, a, blank, a, a background for Heenan and Cornette to do their thing. Uh, Heenan, Bobby Heenan pulls out a lot of old heel tricks, and Cornette just keeps losing his mind because they're working. We get it, this is a match where almost like the review is better by just describing things that happen. So like in the first half of this match, we get thumbs to the eyes of wrestlers from Bobby Heenan. We get a Cornette group hug with Generation Next. We get multiple babyface chain shots. Chain, not anything, and an extended Cabana hide the chain sequence with he's hiding it along with Bobby. We get a Cabana Jack Evans dance off that leads to a Bobby Heenan moonwalk and crotch chop combo. We I, get I a lad, mo- and,
1: and Evans goes to cult. You got the height, but can you do this? and Right before he does a backflip, so it's either you could <laughs> you either you're tall or you could do what Jack Evans does. One of the two.
0: <laughs> and um. Yeah, so we get a moment where Keenan lays down the ring for Cornette and suckers it, like, like I'm going to give you a free shot, and Cornette goes for an elbow drop, Heenan rolls out of the way. And so all of this stuff, it's very goofy, it's very old school, but it's really a lot of fun. It's it's kind of heartwarming in a way because it's just, you know, these guys, these two old ma- managers having fun and popping the crowd with old school kind of comedy spots. And, of course, Cornette, I mean, um, Cabana's perfect for a match like that. And then the second half of the match... Um, Cornette's team takes a powder on the outside. We get a count-out tease, which is weird because Ring of Honor, other than pure title matches, isn't supposed to have count-outs. But I guess they just probably maybe Cornette or Heaton didn't even know that, and they just suggested the spot. So from there, we get almost no focus on the man- on the managers for a lot of the second half of the match, and we get more of a regular tag match. With heel with a heel heat segment with Jacobs being isolated by Strong and Evans. And I would say Evans is strong or a million times better with a heat sequence in the Havana pit balls not to harp on them. They're not doing anything special. They're just tagging in and out and doing cool offense to Jacobs. It wasn't even their best night. Like Evans almost whiffs on a couple spots where he lands far enough away on a couple like – Splash type spots where Gabe has to sell them as, oh, that that's a glancing blow. He didn't get all of it. And Roderick Strong, meanwhile, busts his mouth open pretty bad. And there's one moment in this match where very clear spot call where you can like see it and hear it where he's wrestling. He's starting a like a, a fight, a strike exchange with Jacobs. And you can clearly say, see him tell Jacobs, fire back. And Jacobs fires back. But anyway... Very entertaining, and it all builds to a hot tag where they do the battering ram and then the finishing sequence where Cornet comes in, he uses his racket on Cabana, but then Heenan comes in, uses it himself, Face Team gets the win. For what this was, att- I mean, it, it's hard to grade this on the scale of like what we grade, like typical Ring of Honor action packed, cutting edge matches, whatever, but like for what it was attempting to be, I thought it was pretty great
1: yeah i I mostly agree I thought it was i was, I thought it was a really breath of fresh air on this card with so many long serious wrestling matches. I will say I thought maybe it didn't have to be this long, just considering how long the show was in general you know the two sequences at the beginning, the comedy stuff, which was great but you know lots of stalling you know i think what did you say it ended up being like sixteen or seventeen minutes
0: uh, I think it was seven let me just make sure um it was 1734. So yeah, pretty long match.
1: Yeah, I feel like it could have been 10 minutes, you know, and like, well, they would have gotten the point across. Um, but no, everybody, you know, did was had energy. They were they were good. You know, it was fun stuff. I like um Roderick at this point is um growing his hair out. He's starting to look more like the Roderick we all know and love today. Um. But, you know, like Evans and Strong, um, you know, they're – I mean, even when they have a kind of off night, they're such a good tag team. One of the best. Um, probably one of the most, um, you know, missed opportunity tag teams in history in terms of how amazing they could have been if they were a team for years. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, they, they went with uh, Strong and Aries as the champions instead later on. But I think Evans and Strong are the team, you know, the, from that era. Um But, Definitely. Um, but um, at one point – Jacobs, uh, does, uh, what Gabe calls a big spear and Nolte's like, well, a spear anyway. And I was going to get mad at Nolte, but I was like, you know what? Fine. That's a fine, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, fi- a fine, uh, a fine joke on Jacobs. He is small compared to other wrestlers. Um, but, um, but, and also when uh, Heenan comes in and hits Cornet with the racket, Gabe yells "History," which is—it's <laughs> just really funny. I'm not going to say it was wrong or right to do. It's just really funny. Um, but no, I, I thought in the overall, this was really good and a very appreciated thing on the card. Um, I, it's you know, it's one of those things where it's like this really makes the show a big something for everything, something for everyone kind of show. Um you know you want you want a match like this, and this really delivered in terms of that sort of just like the feel good funny um happy baby face go over kind of situation and and, you know you you never see this match in r o h really, and I thought this was uh it was just a really refreshing thing to have on the card
0: agreed and like one thing like I think Ring of Honor, at least up to this point, I think in the future, like, usually with these old veterans, I think they do things pretty damn good. They usually do them, like, the right balance of – they don't, like, overshadow the the regulars, but they treat them with lots of respect and, you know, they usually are, like, in self-contained little moments like this where – like, I I feel like – a lot of promotions when they have the veterans, they either give them too much deference and make the show too much about them or they kind of treat them as afterthoughts. And I feel like Ring of Honor of this era does like a real good middle ground that really hits at least a sweet spot for me, I think. Um, um,
1: definitely, definitely. They they do the best job with Legends during this era of pretty much any company that I could think of.
0: Yeah. I mean if I was a like, old oh, Legend, then I wouldn't get the best payoff in Ring of Honor. But definitely in terms of just feeling like – I'm not going to be – I'm going to probably have a good time and I'm probably going to get a really heartwarming reaction and I'm probably going to be treated with some level of respect at least at what I do in front of the crowd. Like I I feel like Ring of Honor would probably be a a place high on my list of places to go. But um, The Observer wrote at the time – Apparently, both Jim Cornett and Bobby Heenan had a blast working together on the Ring of Honor show. Heenan will be appearing for a few 2005 Ring of Honor dates. They also did a three-hour sit-down interview session telling stories together that Ring of Honor will release on DVD. From what I was told, after the first question between Cornett and Heenan telling stories, three hours were over before a second question could be asked. Both have expressed interest in continuing their feud. So
1: they don't continue, would, They don't continue the feud, right? But – but I'm pretty sure Heenan does –
0: doesn't he do one more ROH show? I think he might even do more than one, but I, I, he does at least – I think he does maybe more than one. I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I – because I always my memory's so bad I have to do the notes. But I think Heenan – there's a, a show where CM Punk does a promo with a bunch of profanity and Heenan doesn't come back after that. He doesn't appreciate that, so – um. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that when we get to that, I guess. But no, this is not the last we've seen of Bobby Heenan in Ring of Honor. But we don't see that much more of him, right? Um. So this segment, there's also something really weird where there's a weird moment where Colt beckons Bobby into the ring, and just when he gets in, they cut to a highlight from an old Bo- Brian Danielson homicide match, and I felt like on a show where they were showing every second of everything, like. The fact that they cut away from Bobby Heenan getting in the ring after the match, like, it's – I don't know if something went wrong there or something. Like, it just felt weird. Like, why wouldn't you show that when you're showing literally, like, every other second of everything so far? But
1: Yeah, that is um, weird. But just – I mean, whatever went wrong, it wasn't newsworthy enough for us to know about it, so –
0: yeah, and that brings us to Brian Danielson defeating Homicide, who scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, via pinfall in twenty-five minutes, twenty-nine seconds, with a pinning combination out of a catamutilation attempt. He had, he's going for the catamutilation, but instead he just kinda rolls homicide on his shoulders, gets the pin. Matt, you know, two of the best in Ring of Honor, um, getting a lot of time, so obviously usually there's high expectations with that. What'd you think for twenty five minutes of Danielson Homicide here?
1: Well, uh, Danielson and Homicide wrestled a lot in ROH, and a lot of their matches were memorable. Obviously, the first one that we already reviewed, the match a couple years later, where Homicide wins the title from Danielson, and their Best of Five series, which is coming up. So this match sort of gets lost in the shuffle. You don't really hear about it too much, even among, like, ROH diehards. But, I really liked it. I, um, you know, I thought, like, oh god, this is so long, and the show's already so long, I'm not gonna like it, but I thought it was good stuff. I, um, So, you know, like this is supposed to be the beginning of the new Danielson now that he's, um, you know, he's now has hate for the Rottweilers is the first time. And so he does change his look. He has a shaved head. He has black trunks and kick pads. And he even is starting to grow a little beard. Hmm. Um, a beard, you say? Um, and, um, um, so they, so they kind of have like that as the, um, as the basis where, um danielson is kind of working aggressively um and so he's uh he like you know he tries to at one point he tries to do a cravat suplex homicide doesn't go over so dragon he lands on his own head and the announcers act like that was an intentional move but it didn't look that way to me but then again you know you don't see brian danielson mess up too often so maybe i don't know um there's also a sequence where dragon keeps running the ropes and shoulder blocking homicide and covering him which is novel um and eventually he shoulder blocks him to the outside but eventually what he settles into is working over homicide's arm um and homicide of course cuts that off with an eye poke um uh, danielson then body saw, body slams homicide on the ramp and the announcers mentioned that homicide's ankle landed on the ramp so i guess what that's what dragon will work on now i don't know how they could tell from that angle that homicide landed on his ankle but um clearly <laughs> they're living in the future that must be what it is um so uh, homicide takes over um, after Danielson grabs smokes. He suplexes Danielson on the timekeeper's table. Um, he's uh, he's still grabbing at his own leg. Uh, he does a running knee in the corner, but he's limping the whole time. So he does a lot of you know leg selling, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, homicide actually stretches out Danielson for a while, but uh, Danielson like pretty easily escapes and just starts stomping on the ankle some more. Um, so he's being like extra aggressive. That's the story. Um, so um, Homicide tries to get all momentum but every time he does his ankle injury acts up so Danielson keeps uh, keeps the advantage and um, at one point he even kicks Julius Smokes on the outside which is probably something the old Danielson wouldn't have done um, he, uh, Homicide actually blocks an air- the airplane spin with an elbow and goes for his own airplane spin but his ankle can't <laughs> hold it up so now Danielson gets the airplane spin, and Homicide – I like this. Homicide has his middle finger up at the crowd the whole time <laughs> while he's being spun, and he's spun so for good. a Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I just shouldn't have interrupted you. No, it's okay. Um, uh. Uh, the It was a long airplane spin, and Homicide had the middle finger up the whole time. So Danielson <laughs> went up top for the headbutt, but he's acting very dizzy, and he's facing the wrong direction. And he, he ends up diving on Julius Smokes, and at first you're like, did he dive on him by accident because he's dizzy? But I, they, they sold it like it was on purpose. So it's almost like he took the dizziness as a misdirection. Uh, to dive on julius smokes and that got a good that got a big pop and i thought that was a really good spot but it allowed homicide to recover and regain the advantage um and during this whole sequence homicide keeps messing with his boot and they say it's because he's swelling and constricting his ankle so if he takes the boot off his ankle will feel better which um you know i don't totally know the science behind that but you know maybe i don't know um so he slowly uh, climbs the ropes, Danielson runs up, catches him for a superplex, uh, he misses the diving headbutt, and Homicide connects with his own diving headbutt, and Nolte says like he got up quickly that time, and he chalks it up to an adrenaline rush, which I can accept that, you know, get a burst of adrenaline. Um, Homicide goes for a Yakuza kick, but Danielson moves, gets the cattle mutilation, um, and um, Smokes gets on the apron, which gets Danielson to break the hold. Which you know, even Danielson gets gets um, distracted by manager on the apron, tisk tisk tisk. Um, but the Homicide, of course, cheap shots him. He goes for a top rope Rana, but Danielson blocks it and hits an European uppercut off the ropes. Gets a two count off that. Um, eventually, um, the ref stops the match. Like he stops Danielson from attacking Homicide to allow Homicide to remove the boot. And the announcers really criticize the referee for doing that, which, you know, in the context of wrestling, it is true. It doesn't make sense. Why would you just allow that without allowing the other wrestler to continue to work on him? So Homicide does remove the boot, Smokes tapes up the ankle, and Danielson keeps stomping on the leg, but Homicide pops up and hits uh, hits him in the head with the boot, like the actual boot that he took off. He hits him in the head with it, and he gets a very convincing near fall. Now, theoretically... If you're allowed to hit someone with a boot that's on your foot, shouldn't you also be allowed to hit somebody with a boot that's on your hand? So, really, the boot (laughs) is not even a weapon, right? It's just, it's just part of the match. It's, it's a, that's a, a loophole that I just found. Um, (laughs) so, um, dragon escapes the cop killer, um, grabs him from behind, homicide hits the low blow. So this is actually playing off their reborn match, because in that match, Dragon had him from behind, hit the low blow, hit the lariat and won, but this time Homicide hits the low blow, but Danielson blocks the lariat, blocks a second low blow, goes for the cattle mutilation, and then turns it into the pinning combination and gets a sudden three count. Um... So there's there's stuff after the match that I'm sure you'll get to, but I thought this was good. I thought it played off the, the previous match pretty well. I thought it was it was a long match, but it was entertaining the whole way through. I'm not totally sure how I feel about the whole boot thing, but I didn't mind it as I was watching it, and I thought it, you know it gave the match a story, and I and I just I just thought it was really well worked. I I, I like the chemistry between these two, and I'm looking forward to reviewing their um their best of five series. I don't think this was the best match these two had but it was a it was very good it was a very good match in my opinion and and considering how late in the card it was and how long the show was i thought it got pretty good
0: reactions too i agree with that too And I agree about it being very good. I would put that, you know, three and a half, three and three quarter maybe. But I guess the one thing I would say about that though is because I love both these guys so much and because they got a lot of time to work with, very good is kind of disappointing for these two because you kind of hope for great when – if someone tells you Brian Danielson and Homicide get 25 minutes. But as you were noting to me uh, a little while ago like in a a chat, you were kind of mentioning, oh, I don't remember – all of those best of five matches, like I remember them being kind of a mixed bag. Some were good, some were bad. So, it we'll get we'll get to revisit and see. Like, just it feels like they do have chemistry, but maybe that chemistry, like, it doesn't always click one hundred percent. We'll we'll find out when we rewatch this. But um, I thought this was very good. Um, Danielson, it, I thought like every move in the moment was pretty was really good. Like d- these guys are just both excellent in the moment. I I feel like. Danielson is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, wrestler of all time. But something I've noticed on a couple 2004 rewatch matches, rewatching these matches, is um, if there is a flaw of Danielson, sometimes I feels I feel like he kind of comes into the match, and he makes it up as he goes along, which in a sense is great because that's how a lot of the great wrestlers throughout history have done it: is they they go in with very little. You know, I preconceived ideas or spots, and then they kind of just go where the match takes them. But I feel like sometimes with Danielson matches, occasionally they don't become any like more than the sum of their parts. Like to me, this match felt like just its parts. Like move to move was good, but I didn't feel like it really became something special. Where in my favorite Danielson matches, like it kind of builds and builds, and at the end, you're like, oh, it's it's become something. It these things have kind of come together, and I also felt like. I felt like Homicide did an excellent job selling his his leg, like he does. He, Homicide does so many little things on the selling of his ankle. Like he'll do moves differently than he normally does. Like that, like you mentioned, the running boot to the corner. it's basically he's almost like a running ass to the corner because he doesn't lead with his feet to the face. He almost like puts his feet above. Like it's, it's, he does moves differently. He um he he'll limp when he runs the ropes. There's a point where he's like in a cover and even before he kicks out he's like holding his ankle in pain while he's being covered even while the cover's going on like he does so many good little things and then of course grabbing the boot at the end and all uh, that hom- stuff
1: homicide was the better performer in this match and how often can you say that about a danielson match
0: y- yeah i i agree and one problem about the ankle i felt though was homicide's the heel in this feud And it made him sympathetic because he was the guy fighting through a like an injury the whole way. And yes, he does cheat at the end with the boot. Although, like you said, if you know boot on the hand is, I was going to say it's worth two in the bush. We need a rhyming thing that lets you know that it's okay to use a boot on the hand. A boot on the hand, it's all good, man. Like I think um, I think that's perfect. (laughs) But Breaking Bad. yeah, it, 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 that's where it
1: really came. From. Better call Saul. I guess I should have said that instead.
0: <laughs> Best of three falls. Better call Saul. No, no, um, no but uh, you know it's um, all good, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, but um, I, I just felt like it was kind of put Homicide in a position where I was feeling sympathy for him in a match where I know the point is not that I should be feeling sympathy for Homicide, and also. For a guy that is such a you know a ring general like Danielson, I felt like he, Homicide was selling the ankle so good, and Danielson didn't work that much on it. like a few times in the match he'd stomp on it a bit, but he didn't really work on it with submissions or really key in on it. And it, it, like it's weird because again you expect Danielson is such a like a cerebral wrestler that you would think oh he's just gonna focus in on that and that's gonna be the story of the match, and it really isn't like the story homicide selling his ass off with the ankle, but the story isn't really Danielson working on the ankle it's more homicide's ankles hurt, and he eventually gets his boot off and hits Danielson with it like it's It's more homicide telling the story, and Danielson's not really doing much to tell it but again the the moments in the match are good, like every move that you describe like there's lots of really good just solid work um I love that fake out like you mentioned where he's dizzy and doing the top rope headbutt and you think, oh, he's just pointing the wrong way because he's dizzy. But then actually he jumps on Smokes all the way on the floor. Um, there There is a moment. I, I should have gotten a timestamp for this. although who knows how everyone's watching this? But there's a moment. If you people might if you pay attention, Julie Smokes is standing right by the ring during a moment. You can just see him in the background. The camera's not focused on him. He's in the background. But. His gum, he's chewing gum. It falls out of his mouth and it falls like on his clothes. And he has a classic, I've I've been here, like freak out where he's like, oh, shit, I lost my gum. He's trying to like figure out where it is on his shirt and pick it up. And uh, for some reason, it just made me lose it watching it. And um, apart from that, just look at my notes. Oh, one question I was going to ask you, Matt, is another little minor gripe I had with this match is for a match that was billed as like, this is the new kind of Brian Danielson. This is, you know, more intense. He's angry this time. Do you feel like he worked that much more intense than he normally does? Like he he definitely changed his look, like you mentioned. But I feel like normally Danielson often often works fairly like growly and intense. in this period, I didn't feel like he was that much more intense.
1: I um I do think he was more intense. I I, I don't agree that he doesn't that he worked that he pr- was working growly during this period. I think in in recent shows he was actually being kind of like cocky and smirky and you don't get any of that here Um, like if you remember the Liger match, like he was like totally doing that. Even the Joe match where he was like doing like the runner, like you know the rope a dope, and then like kind of like doing a little dancing and stuff like that. I feel like he was leaning more into that version of Brian Danielson, and now he's a little bit more into like the the snarly version, the stomping on the leg, the you know the hitting smokes. Like there is still a little bit of goofiness in like the airplane spin thing. Like so, he hasn't lost it completely but i I do think it's it's a mild evolution, but I do think it's an evolution. I do think like this is not a version of Danielson that we've seen at least in a while um and I think the, I think the look makes a difference, like I mean as he grows out the beard, like he clearly like takes on a different persona as like a, a quirky weirdo um, you know, <laughs> and eventually, I think right before he, he leaves um for Europe, he even switches his music to like the um, the imperial March from Star Wars, which is very <laughs> funny he's we 're a few months away from that, but he 's already coming out with the with, like the cape. And like you know, just like I, I think you're right, you're right. The style is not 100 percent different, but the vibe is different. And I think I think that's enough.
0: There are some differences I like. Like there is one moment early on where he like gets pissed at homicide, and he throws like really good closed fist punches from from. Brian Danielson and, and like I don't know how many times I've ever seen Brian Danielson throw punches and they look pretty good and that that's something like always fascinating when you see a wrestler that doesn't usually throw punches throw punches cuz 9 times out of 10 they don't look good I thought these looked pretty good and he only throws like a few and then he doesn't do any more and I'm kind of reminded that I think Danielson once was, when he came back from his last really bad injury, he was like, oh, maybe I'll, tr- I've been studying like Jerry Lawler and stuff. And he was like, you know, because I want to wrestle till I'm in my 60s or 70s like them. And I was just thinking, like, maybe deep down there's like a Brian Danielson we'll be watching when he's like 48 years old where he's just like throwing a lot of punches. Like, I think I he mean, has it in I, him. Mean,
1: there's a, I mean, there's a lot of wrestlers that did that. And I I mean, Danielson. Danielson's a guy, it seems like can do pretty much anything he wants to do. So if that's what his body is telling him, I wouldn't be surprised at all.
0: Definitely. And, um, one thing I want to single out too is the finish. Cause I really like the finish. Actually, I, you know, I, I've nitpicked this match, but I really like the finish. Um, it's a finish where I think if people – it won't seem that dramatic unless you know that's playing off their last Ring of Honor match, which to their credit, commentary in, tells you what it's playing off of because Homicide Mule kicks Danielson in the nuts and then he goes for the Lariat, which is exactly how he won their first match in Ring of Honor. But then Danielson dodges the Lariat and then he goes for the Cat Mutilation and uh, – Homicide tries for a second meal kick to the balls, and then Danielson blocks the kick with his foot. And I just thought that was like really cool, playing off of the past. And Matt, last thing I want to mention—well, two things. First off, Martin Ulti early on says, "I think if the, a wrestling match will favor Homicide over Danielson, what? Like, yeah, Homicide can do everything. This, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say Homicide can do everything, but I don't think he has the edge in a wrestling.
1: No, I mean obviously that's ridiculous, but he's said similar things like that before. But I did like one thing that Nolte said about like how Homicide is like the best at executing a plan, and like that's not the sort of way that they promote Homicide usually. But it actually makes sense if you like go through Homicide's matches where he's really good at like you know devising. Like even though he's kind of a wild man, like devising a strategy, being clever in a match. Like I think it's cool that Nolte is is like sells Homicide like that because it's true. Like in terms of like the way he performs. But I, I but, but like, you're but you're right. He is not he is not a uh, considered a better um, pure wrestler than Brian Danielson. No, he is not. The, they, like, they did they did not name the technical wrestling award in the Observer the Homicide Award.
0: <laughs> if there was an award for like most well rounded wrestler, I would definitely consider naming it after Homicide. But yeah, um, but I think Homicide. It's interesting when I think about his year, and obviously we'll wrap it up more in the next episode with our year end stuff. But like homicide is um i feel like this year, last year we gave him our wrestler of the year award i feel like like last year he had a couple of the really high top end matches like you know the do or die match with joe and then the uh the matches with Corino were like some of our favorite matches of the year in fact the Carino match the first one was our match of the year but like I feel like this year he's had a lot of matches like this where it's like it's not going to be remembered as a classic match or even maybe like even a four star match. But there, he's been like in a lot of really good matches where he has like really great individual performances where it's, it's kind of sad because it's kind of a year where he's good. But maybe you're not going to, just looking at the matches on paper, you're not realizing like, how good Homicide is in these matches. Because he's really good in them.
1: And I think that's sort of the story for Homicide's career, like in ROH for the rest of time. Like, I don't think he ever has a year with the level of matches that he had in 2003, but he's just really good, you know? Go yeah. all the time.
0: And then finally, the thing I wanted to mention on commentary, because I thought this was just an amazing little bit of commentary that would not ever happen nowadays. It just shows you how much times change. Um, Gabe says, Homicide, you know, because remember, folks, this is right after a month after homicide had a match with John Walters where he got like legit concussed really bad. And thank God between the time we did that last episode and this one, no concussions have happened in pro wrestling, like in (laughs) modern times. So uh, yeah,
1: where the match kept going. No, that doesn't happen. No,
0: no, no. Uh, Tony Khan clearly does not listen to through the years and shame on him. But, um, (laughs) so gabe says homicides coming off a concussion so he may be quote soft in the head and and then gabe goes on to say there's only so many concussions you can take and with each concussion you become more susceptible to another concussion which is all true but that's fucking amazing because no announcer would dwell on that in 2020 (laughs) like holy shit like, well, it's just amazing also it showed, how also it shows changed. that
1: it also shows that Gabe knew back when he let homicide continue that match what the
0: consequences were. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just amazing because, like, I, I always say when people are like, "Oh, we didn't know concussions were bad until five or ten years ago," because no people decades ago knew concussions were bad, but they're definitely like it w- until I would say the Ben Wad murders, they were not treated. They were treated as more like an angle prop sometimes like like this, where it was like it's a way to sell this match like, oh, homicide had a bad concussion recently and he could have another one like people didn't really realize how serious that could be, you know, which we really should have because we're in the era of like Bret Hart fucking having his career ended from concussions
1: as a non-athlete when i would hear like wrestling announcers talk about concussions like they were they would usually brush them off so nonchalantly that i really just kind of thought like oh they're you know they suck but they're not you know it didn't strike me as like these life-altering events and clearly we know that they very much can be
0: there was like one angle wwf did in the 90s where um Owen Hart, like, did an enziguri to Shawn Michaels and gave him a concussion. They really played that up, like, the, as a storyline. But, yeah, for the most part, concussions were always like, oh, that's an injury you can work through, you know. Right,
1: well, like, he, oh, he, yeah, the, like, guy, the guy got dinged. He got a concussion, but he'll be yeah. back, you know. Like, oh, oh it was – like, I remember when Brock Lesnar at, at WrestleMania 19 landed on his head uh, in the Shooting Star press and everyone was like, oh, man, like, he um, – He might have broken his neck. He was, like, bleeding from the nose. What is his internal bleeding? And then you find out, like, oh, it was a concussion. I remember the reaction for a lot of people, including me, was like, oh, just a concussion. He'll be fine, you know? But it's like, oh, that's probably a pretty bad concussion when Brock Lesnar, the summon the size of Brock Lesnar, lands on Brock Lesnar's head, you know?
0: (laughs) Even in the history of through the years, like, I remember reading that thing from the Observer in the, one of the shows last year, that the main event of that show where, a uh, low key legit knocked out Dan Moth. And I remember reading the report in the Observer for that episode where Dave was like, the good news is Moth went to the hospital and he doesn't have a concussion. And it's like, he got knocked unconscious. Like, I love that we lived in this era where it's like, and I guess we still live in that because that's the same thing with the Matt Hardy thing. Like, yeah, he, was stumbling to his feet and you know, all this stuff, but he doesn't have a concussion. Like at some point, the word concussions, like I almost don't care that about that as much as just head trauma and being screwed up. But uh, you know, it's just weird. But right. um, after the match, homicide attacks, Danielson, he tries to fight back, but Julius Smokes joins in, as do the Havana Pitbulls and Low Key, who all run from the back. Um, so Ring of Honor students try and save Danielson, but to no positive effect, they get beaten down. Homicide They're does very, very top-
1: brave of those students to come out of they, they, like, why? Why did they decide that they were going to be the ones to save Brian Danielson?
0: Yeah, I mean, Danielson isn't even the trainer yet. You know, it's yeah. not on them. You know, he's not their master yet, but uh, Punk trained homicide- them to be
1: honorable men. <laughs>
0: Uh, homicide does a top rope double stomp to Danielson's arm as it's being held out to his side Dunn and Marcos then trying to help Danielson. So I think what we're learning about the show is only the low card guys care about Brian Danielson. They get beaten down. Homicide goes after Danielson's eye. Smokes hits him with his shoe and drops an elbow on Danielson. Smokes does, and then finally, John Walters, Jay Lethal, Nigel McGuinness, and the Carnage crew and Chad Collier chase away the Rottweilers. Although that I do, I do love dec- when
1: I do love when they come out and the commentators are like, "Finally, someone came out to save Brian Danielson." Like, <laughs> oh, these other guys, these poor guys, these uh, Dunn and Marcos and. Uh, yeah. The students,
0: the student, yeah. Marco should just be in the corner with like a, one single tear dripping down his face. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I thought that was a pretty good beat down. Obviously, just the, yeah, he's just getting started. Good angle, um,
1: good angle. And it's funny because he was so mad about the beat down at the last show. This one was like eighty five thousand times more intense than that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, before the next match, we get which is the main event. We get Gabe and Punk talking over video highlights of the previous two Joe Punk matches. I felt like this had a cool old school feel to it because Punk was really, you know, in character talking like strategy like this is why I did this and Ooh, look at this one and all this stuff. And he, there's also a funny little moment where he goes, I have knees like KJ Mudos, which was like a funny thing. But the only negative uh, – one negative to me was I felt like some people I've heard complaints a little too long and it was fairly long for one of these segments on an already long show. But also – I know they just did this because Punk's basically in a Ring of Honor employee at this point between the school and the commentary was likely around. But, like, it is a little weird that, like, Punk gets this basically, like, like a sit-down interview to go over his matches and Joe, the world champion, like, doesn't. But I realize that's just logistics. But what, what, what did you think about this? Because I know seeing opinions online, some people like this and some people didn't.
1: Um I mostly liked it. I um you know, it does it did feel like after watching this whole show I'm like, uh do I really want to watch this now too? Um you know, especially having seen their shoot interviews where they explain more of it. Um but you know, it's a DVD, so no one's forced to watch everything all at once anyway. Yeah. So like it's fu- I thought it was good. Like I thought it added a different vibe to the match. It made the match seem more important. Um I do wish that we got a more tr- traditional CM Punk promo on this show where he's, like, more intense about the match because he's, he's so casual in every moment that we see or hear from yeah. him on the DVD. And I do think that kind of undermines the vibe. Not too much, you know, because the match itself makes up for it, but I don't know. Um, that's really my only complaint
0: about it. Yeah, going to what you said earlier, which is, like, a guy having, like, on the eve of the biggest match of his life probably shouldn't be, like, cracking jokes about Alice in Danger like an hour or a couple hours before. <laughs> like, right. That just doesn't look great. Totally. But um, that brings us to the main event, the Ring of Honor World Title Match. Samoa Joe defeats CM Punk in 31 minutes, 33 seconds when he makes him pass out in the rear naked choke. So before the match, Ricky Steamboat gets a full entrance. He slaps hands with everyone in the front row. He gets in the ring, gets on the mic, and he says, tonight has been one hell of a show. He says, you could tell everyone's been working their butt off, and he gives the crowd, he get, he prompts the crowd to give the wrestlers a hand. Steamboat brings up the earlier Cornet promo and says the mess. His message for Cornet is that legends don't die. And then Ricky says he came out to say something else, but he had to say that first. Steamboat then brings up Rick Mick Foley's past comments that he doesn't ha- that Steamboat doesn't have any guts um steamboat says he won't say the same thing about foley but he slams him for doing a personal appearance at a hockey game instead of being at the show tonight which was a real thing Foley wasn't booked for this night because he had a personal appearance at a hockey game and um he says foley has some of the biggest balls has taken some of the biggest bumps but he doesn't have any wrestling skill ricky says maybe the next time they're in this building they'll have a face-to-face confrontation his skill against foley's guts Steamboat then puts over the upcoming main event and says tonight he's just going to plant his butt at the timekeeper's table and he's just going to be a fan and enjoy the match. I don't know why why, why Steamboat needed a full promo here and why he felt the need to bring up the cornet thing, but it wasn't bad and you know it sets up his involvement in a minute. So, okay, this match, who oh boy? Um, uh, Matt. Uh, I remember when this match happened 16 years ago. I was just a dumb little 20 year old Canadian kid. I was feverishly refreshing the Ring of Honor message board, waiting for someone to post the result. Um,
1: this was the first. I think this was the first time I ever followed a Ring of Honor like results page live was for this match. Because you know, even as someone who wasn't watching from show to show, you know, I had seen the first Joe versus Punk um, draw. I knew about the second one and its legend, and I was like, man, this is gonna be something.
0: Yeah, and I was the same way. I, I I was um I was hoping and convinced that Punk would win, and I was like, convinced that the match would probably be over sixty minutes because it made sense to me. Because when you watch wrestling long enough, you get kind of a feel for the rhythms of wrestling booking, and I just thought to myself, well. Joe had basically been champ for well over a year. He had been every top name except Loki, and Loki was a heel. He beat Danielson. He beat Homicide a million times. He beat Christopher Danielson, AJ Styles even. He, he beat Punk early on in his title ring in a non-title match. So I thought the only guy left for, that could beat him, unless you're going to do key re the title as a heel, would be Punk. And I thought also the natural rhythm of wrestling booking would be like the challenger, gets close but doesn't get it and then he finally gets it so i thought well punk had the two draws it'd be really anticlimactic for him to lose so i was convinced like punk's winning this it's gonna be like at least 65 minutes
1: right i mean that's what they wanted you to think right they i mean they built up they built up the no time limit thing you know like i mean clearly like this is exactly what they wanted (laughs)
0: like i i I, when i was listening to an honorable mention about this show they were saying that people in the message board were speculating that this would be a two-hour match or like a 30 second flash pin or all this stuff Like maybe some people online were, but for me, like I was completely hook, lighting and sinker thinking punk wins 65 minutes or more. That's that. And so they completely had me. And so I keep refreshing and then I see Samoa Joe wins and he wins in half an hour. And I'll I'll be honest, Matt, my initial reaction is was massive disappointment. I was a big Joe fan, but I was just like, I thought all the booking was pointing this way. It's what I kind of convinced myself should happen. It's what I convinced myself would ha- happen. And I was so disappointed. And that's why this match is fucking genius, Matt. Because this match – and really the first ten minutes the, – the last two matches, which were each an hour, and the first ten minutes of this match are all built to raising your expectations that CM Punk and Samoa Joe matches go a certain way. And the so it's an hour – it's 130 minutes of wrestling that builds to a final 21 minutes, which is the last 21 minutes of this 31 minute match completely flips. It's built to just flipping everything. And Punk even said it in like the shoot, which I got notes on, we can talk after we review the match where he says like the whole point of this was, you know, everything we did in this trilogy built up to the end. And so just to kind of go over the story of this match, we recap the stories on, of the first two, but just to, as a refresher, the whole point is Samoa Joe's the unbeatable champion. He's held the title for over the year, over a year. And in fact, not only has he held the title for over a year, I think very rarely has he even had a match go over twenty minutes, a singles match, a title defense, that is. And so Punk's like, well, what? How can I beat this guy? And we find out in their first match of two thousand four, he's going to do a headlock. It's just put him in headlocks every time he every chance he can at least for the first half an hour or so and he's going to wear joe down and get him into deep waters get him to do a match longer than he's ever done before and see what happens and if you know punk's history it makes even more sense because before rick punk came to ring of honor he kind of rose to prominence first as the guy who did really long matches with chris hero in iwa mid-south so you kind of oh this makes complete sense for punk so first match 60 minute draw Punk doesn't win, but he becomes the only guy Joe can't beat. They do a rematch, 60-minute draw, same thing. Joe's really getting frustrated in that match, although he starts doing better by the end. And so this match starts off. Punk goes for headlocks. Joe like avoids the first lockup. He avoids or gets out quickly, like, first headlock or two. But then Punk starts getting the headlocks again. And the first 10 minutes, it's not completely the same, but it's pretty similar to the first two matches. And then Joe just, uh, during one sequence, gets a huge, loud kick, like a soccer kick to Punk's head when he's bent over. Punk oh. belts to the outside. He blades, and that changes everything. The whole, st- And th- this was an intentional blade. I mean, I said blade, so it's obviously intentional blood. But, like, the whole point of this is to be blood as a story. It's not blood just because it's a big match. Because from there, Punk doesn't try and do the headlocks anymore. The whole idea is... Punk in this – the whole story of this match and this trilogy is Punk found this one thing, headlocks, which makes him – which gives him a chance against Joe. And then all of a sudden in this no time limit final match, he starts bleeding 10 minutes and he can't do headlocks because he can't draw this match out. He has to try and end it now. And then we find out what happens, which is when Punk can't use his strategy anymore, which is he – you know, pushes Joe pretty hard in some cases, but Joe fucking kicks his ass. You know, the Punk in large sequences in this match is really beaten up in a way he isn't in the first two matches. And that's a lot of why this match is incredible, but also they do all sorts of little switches on the past stuff. Like, for example, Punk in the first two matches, two hours of wrestling, he never loses, wins the strike exchange. He'll throw some strikes, but Joe always wins the strike exchange in the end. There is a strike exchange in this match where punk actually wins and like joe falls crumples to the mat all dizzy down goes and, samoa joe yeah, exactly and, and, or you, and they you know they do stuff like they switch up spots where what worked in the past didn't or what didn't before like their example the first two punk match joe matches of the year punk goes for a rana off the apron to the floor Joe catches him, swings him into the barricade or all sorts of stuff. This time, you think Punk's going to go for it again? Instead, he just hits a drop kick off the apron to the floor and it hits because it's a switch-up. You know, Joe's not expecting it. There's stuff like Joe avoids the Shining Wizard, but eventually Punk hits it. Joe does a Rana to Punk. You know, there are all sorts of little switch-ups and then – What I really and also this is also I would say easily the most physical match these two have had punks doing a lot of drop kicks to the back of Joe's head and really working over the neck and I felt like both guys really laying it in a bit more than they would in their other two matches And it all builds and builds and it's just so good because it's just playing on all your expectations. It's a completely different match. Punk's great at selling, getting the shit beat out of him, you know, being the real underdog for the first time in the trilogy. Joe's great at just being I would say Joe if the second match was Joe being really frustrated, this match is like Joe who's like he's done playing around. Like he is just taking it so serious. He's giving Punk a lot of respect, but it's like He's not frustrated, but he's also, he's just staring like just very intense of Joe in tens of different spots. It's hard to describe, but, um, and then comes one of my favorite spots ever in wrestling. And we can get to the story behind the spot, but late in the match, and this spot kind of sums up how I feel about the whole match late in the match. Joe puts his feet on the ropes during a pin of punk and, uh, it's it's a two count and punk still kicks out anyway and the crowd and the crowd like jersey was a city that didn't like punk so even in this match where he's long into his babyface run it was still like 50-50 joe punk after that spot the crowd actually boos and chants like fuck you joe and when i heard about that spot and when i watched that spot for the my first reaction was just like when i heard about this match being 30 minutes joe winning was like that doesn't make sense like joe's not a heel and then I sent you think about it and you realize it's fucking genius because it puts over how much Joe cares about winning the title, keeping the title, and how much he's how scared he is that Punk could beat him because. Joe doesn't turn heel off of this move. You know, it's not like from this point on he's a heel. He's just this one moment where he is so scared that he's going to lose the title. He has become so desperate after these three matches, he's going to cheat, and he's never cheated in his entire title ring and he, and he cheats here, and it doesn't work, and he doesn't cheat again in the rest of the match. But it's just a genius spot that shows how fucking desperate he is. And, and I and I love it. it's like it's a moment that pays off. And Matt, I know I'm talking a lot, so I'll just wrap up quick, but um one other thing i i think why i love this match so much is it pays off so many spots it pays off spots matt that aren't even spots that are related to this feud because there is a moment and it's a spot there's part of it we can talk after you're done revealing why i don't like this spot all the way but there's a spot late in the match where joe gets punk in the choke and um Punk's arms go up, you know, a ref raises the arm, drops it, goes down three times. As he goes to, the ref goes to call the match, Steamboat notices Punk's hand has started to twitch, and he stops the timekeeper from ringing the bell. And what I love about that is, maybe it's not intentional, but that felt like a payoff to the entire Steamboat-Punk feud, because the whole point of that feud started with, Punk feeling like Steamboat – I think Steamboat was a ref for one of his pure title matches with AJ – like screwed him out of that match. And I just love – even though they've made up and been working together for a while now, that felt like the ultimate path where it's like come completely full circle where now Steamboat has gone from being a guy Punk felt like fucked him over even though Steamboat didn't to now Steamboat has literally like saved him in his most important match. And then at the end, the finish of this match, another part – this is the other thing they pay off that isn't even – like a uh, part of the feud is if you've been a long time ring of honor fat watcher and they've even, t- they even talk about it on commentary, Joe's one weakness, the times he's lost matches that weren't title matches has often been through roll-ups like, um, Quick roll ups, Joe can't sometimes can't kick out of them. Like Moth in a six man tag is up their singles match in two thousand three. He pinned him with a quick pinning roll up. And then Colt Cabana, famously at Survival of the Finest, eliminated Joe. He was the first elimination with a roll up. And so Punk laying the match. He's so desperate, you know, he's tried everything. He tries a roll up. Joe kicks out at two and pops him right into the choke. And then punk is fucking dead. He, he, he keeps applying the choke. He suplexes punk a couple of times and just makes him pass out. And that's, again, it's pays off so much. This, this is a match more than very few matches I've seen other than maybe like all Japan in the nineties that rewards you for watching ring of honor for all it rewards you for doing a ring of honor podcast, Matt. It re, it plays off so many little things and it's so much better if you've watched it. Like, I'm going to say this right now. I think this is a five-star match. I think this is the best match of the trilogy. And I think this is the best match we've watched so far on through the years. And I think if you just watch this match without any of the context of the history of these guys, of their matches, of just their characters, I think it's like a four and a quarter star match, which is coincidentally what Dave Meltzer gives this match. I think if you know all the history, it is a no second thought five-star match. I think this match is fantastic. Matt, I'll shut up now. What do you think of this match?
1: Well, after my um, review of the sixty-minute last 60-minute 60 match, Joe vs. Punk 2, you said that was the best re- um, recap I ever gave on the show. I would say this is definitely the best recap you ever gave on the show. Um, fantastic job. I, um, Aww, and you. obviously I feel like when you feel passionately about whatever you're reviewing and put a lot of thought into it, that obviously makes the review better. So, And you could tell how much you love the match. But let me ask you this. Did you know you felt this way about this match before you watched it? Like, did you already know going into this, like, oh, I'm pretty sure that third match is the one that I liked the best?
0: I did not remember which one I preferred more or between two. I knew it was between two and three, which is mm-hmm. what most people will say. But here's the thing I thought. I thought I was going to say – um oh, the third match is maybe more fun, but it's not as good as the second match because the third match is just paying off a bunch of stuff. The second one paid off, and it's not fair to give it all that credit. But here's the thing. When I watched this match, I realized by the end I was having such a good time that, like, I didn't care. Like, I don't care if technically this match does is good because it's kind of paying off a lot of stuff. It, it pays off a lot of stuff. And, and so to me, that's – I don't care – Why this match, you know, was better to me. It just was the most fun I've had watching a match in a long time. I rewatching it. It just so no, I didn't remember loving it this much. I think I love it this much now because honestly, like doing the podcast, I don't think I without doing the podcast, I wouldn't have noticed stuff like I didn't. I don't think the first time I watched it, I noticed like the significance of Punk doing the roll up into the choke that ends the match. Like that's only from the fact that we we've talked about the roll ups and stuff before. Now, you know, like now I've focused on this so much more that I noticed even little things like that.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Um, so I guess you know, for me, um, my for what I'll say about the matches, um, I'll get to like my final thoughts at the end. I'll save them. But um, so there are a couple of things that I disagree with you on minorly. They're very minor. Which is, I do think that the way this match started, the first ten minutes. I don't think it was quite the same as the first two matches. Like, I don't think that they started this match with the idea that this was going to, like, look like the same 60 minute slow pace. I think they started out at a much faster pace, even the headlock stuff. Like, the early stuff was Joe kind of not allowing Punk to get the headlocks. Like, it was like Joe scouted it. And, like, so Punk's strategy wasn't working for the first time. And it, they were going real fast. Then eventually. Joe punk got the headlock after a backslide and he goes i got you now motherfucker and it was like so there was this there was this vibe like the match is faster paced but not so fast paced they couldn't possibly do the hour but it got you wondering and then once you know obviously once punk got busted open it was like okay this is a clear message to the crowd you are not getting a 60 minute match here don't expect it the guy's bleeding (laughs) you know um yeah and I thought that's good because it kind of changes up the expectations. It gets the crowd to care about the near falls.
0: Which, Actually, could sorry. I, just, uh, sorry, I just want to ask you a quick question before we move off this because I'm really curious about this. So reading reports, and we'll get to it after, like I think it's in the Observer, like live reports that, oh, some fans were a little disappointed because they thought the match was going 60 or whatever. And Matt, do you think if you're watching this match live in that building after 10 minutes, do you really think at that point this match is going 60? Not just the blood, but even the pace they're cutting.
1: Yeah, no way. I mean, like, like to me, like to me, like that was like one of the main purposes of the blood. It was like to be like, hey guys, this ain't gonna be a sixty minute match. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it makes them. It immediately makes the match different. And I thought that was really good. And 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 Joe, you know, even goes different because he starts tearing at Punk's cut. You know, it's like it's a totally different vibe, and you know, and I loved it. Like, it's great. Like, I have no nothing negative to say about that. Um, but another thing that I really like about this match is this is almost like one of those Misawa versus Kobashi matches where they just do like fourth gear near falls for like 25 minutes. But sometimes those matches can can like feel like just an endless parade of false finishes and near falls and it's like almost like too much and nowadays when you have a match that's just tons of near falls it's like the guys hitting their finishers over and over and over again, or each other's finishers, or someone else's finishers, or dropping each other on their head. This match had 20 minutes of like big time false finishes almost. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I'd say like 12 minutes of big time false finishes, but none of them were hackneyed. They did not spam finishers, they did not repeat things. Like, it's almost like a lost art to do false finishes that aren't based on a wrestler's finishing move
0: and that, as, there's no pepsi plunge in this there's no muscle buster yeah. there's no um right uh, there's no island driver there's none of that
1: right and as we talked about they were re- i mean considering how much they did now we're talking about 2 hours and 31 minutes they were so um conservative in terms of like how much they did you know what i mean like they they yeah. they they held back and they still did everything at the same time, you know. This was the fir- the, the choke that won Joe the tie- that won Joe the match. Pretty sure that w- that was the first choke of the entire series, right?
0: Y- yeah, like like there's the two chokes in this match, and the first one, Punk yeah. does the the uh, Piper right. Brett flip over yeah. spot. Yeah, and I think both of those. Like, I think he's tried the choke before, but I don't think he ever got it on. Like, yeah. So like, th- th- I mean, it really is a
1: lost art. To, uh, like the way they did that. And it's very impressive that they were able to pull it off with their, you know, like, you know, levels of experience. Um, I thought that, um, before the, um, before the, um, legs on the ropes thing, um, my favorite spot of the match was where Punk, where, um, so they do the whole big fight on the top rope just like at the end of the 60 minute match. You know, one of the, be- that's probably the best part of that 60 minute match was the fight on the top rope. So, um, Joe catches – Joe goes for a superplex, and Punk fights him off, and he bites Joe's face, and Punk like drops down and tries to powerbomb Joe off the top, and that's when Joe hits the Rana and then hits an insane lariat, and – Punk's kick out of that is one of the biggest pops of the whole match. I thought that was the spot of the match. Just like people like – no one can believe that Punk kicked
0: out of that. And at yeah, that and point – sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say going to your thing like uh, what I asked you earlier about how could people say the fans thought the match was going to go long. The fans bought that Joe was going to win with a lariat.
1: Right. No, right? They, they bought all of these false finishes that the guys never win with. But part of that is Joe wins with a lots of different moves.
0: Yeah. like that, He's won but, with a lariat.
1: Yeah. He's won – yeah. So that's a big part of it. Um so like as soon as that spot happens Gabe is like this is Punk's night I can feel it and like I'm like oh man he's telegraphing but then immediately <laughs> then immediately after that when Joe kicks out Gabe's like no I was wrong Joe's going to be champion <laughs> forever and I, I I love that um you know I um what one great thing about the um Joe putting his um putting his foot on the ropes is like the moment that it happened, it was basically like they were doing a forearm exchange and Punk was just getting the best of it and like screaming and just like, really like, just like he had Joe on the ropes and that's when Joe picked the moment to pick, uh, to grab Punk's legs, put his legs on the ropes uh, and just like, you know, the fuck you Joe chant. It just worked like a charm. And, um, you know, it's just such a brilliant spot. Um, You know, uh, and then punk does go for a pepsi plunge and that's when joe knocks off and goes for a splash but he overshoots and knees punk in the face that's really i think the only kind of like botchy thing in the match but it worked just fine because both guys were down and that's when you know punk did the roll up like you said joe grabbed the choke um the please don't tap chant but um but joe um but punk does pass out gave like punk may have died there he had to do it mm. um so you know what I loved is that like it played on expectations by starting faster, but not so fast that they couldn't have gone long until the blade job. But once they kicked into high gear, they stayed in high gear. You know for a long time. The one thing for me, I think, that puts it slightly, you know, and I would say, I would say this is a five star match. Also, I would I would think that's pretty pretty fair. Um, you know, just one of the best matches in ROH history to this day. The one thing that I would make that for me puts this the joe vs punk two ahead of it is that match just felt so historic and i do slightly like the playing on past spots playing on a uh, thing slightly less than you do I, I i appreciate it but i do think it can go overboard and i think this very very barely bordered on overboard just in terms of like just too clever by half and i would say not even by half at this point like too clever maybe by like a (laughs) 12th um just in terms of like so much it's like oh yeah we did this in the last match we'll do this we'll do this in the last match we'll do this and it's just like maybe there's a little bit less is more when it comes from that i see what you're saying and i get why that you that appeals to you so much it appeals to me just slightly slightly less but i don't want to take anything away from the match i thought the match was amazing um it is it is super fascinating to me that when I went back and looked at like live reports, you didn't have people really praising it to that level. Um, you know, People loved the match, some of them. Some of them were like, it's disappointing. But you didn't have anyone saying this is like an all-time match of the year. And you didn't really hear people saying that until the match came out on video. And I wonder if this is a match that just played so much better on video because you could see all the little nuances much better than, than you could – in the moment and in the crowd. Um, and like, that's just something I wonder. I because I, I, I don't know what, if you found live reports that really said this was an all-timer. I didn't. And I think most ROH fans at this point would say this is an all-timer.
0: A, a couple things there. Okay, so first off, I believe this match didn't start till a few minutes after midnight. And I I think the atmosphere, considering that, is great. I think this has a really great fight atmosphere. I think the crowd's pretty loud. for Not the loudest I've heard in Ring of Honor, but pretty loud. But part of me wonders if that might play a little bit. And I think the other part is maybe what I just started off with, which is I bet you a bunch of fans thought Punk was going to win. And maybe that kind of deflated them in a weird way. Like, there are yeah, yeah fans, but all, and I
1: think also people like love the idea of long and like it's crazy because a 31-minute match is a really freaking long match. Like that's a long, long, long match. It's just, you know, half as long as their last two matches.
0: That's probably like the fifth longest Joe title defense in Ring of Honor because, OK, he's got the two 60-minute draws with Punk. He's got the 40-something-minute match with Danielson. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. It's like the fourth longest, I mean, then. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, it's just because you're comparing it. And and so I thought it was interesting what you said about comparing this to the second match. So this is my kind of – I was thinking about this. Um, I think all three – well, all three of these matches, even the first draw, which is not as good as these two but still great, I would say they all – are great matches that are better if you know the background and have watched the matches before them. Like, even the first match, it's not as good if you don't know, like, why it's significant that Punk is taking Joe this long and, you know, that Joe's never been in matches this long and he's usually not on the defensive like this. But what I will say is I think if you – all these matches are still great but not as great if you watch them without context. But if you watch them without context, I think the second match is the best. I think without and, you know, again, like you were saying, I like all the callbacks. You think sometimes they're a little too you like them, but sometimes it's all a little almost too cute. I, I think if you if you strip that away and just go, I want to watch these matches each separately just as a match. I think the second is the best match. But because I love that stuff so much and because I feel like it pays off so much stuff, that's what puts this on. And I also think one of the reason that maybe why this match isn't re- remembered as fondly. It doesn't quite get with you to what you were saying because I know you were talking about like live reports, what fans thought right at the time. But like, I do think part of it is first off, the second match was the first five star match in seven years in the US. So the first is always going to get more talk and stuff. But also, um, the second match, like, th- this match got stiffed in all the awards in like newsletters and stuff because it happened in early December. And especially like the way the Observer does stuff, where it's like, you know, it might not even have qualified because they usually do like at the cutoff ends at a certain point, in either like November or December for what counts, because they wanted to get the awards out early.
1: At the time, the Observer awards cut off in November, so this was yeah, not I, this was eligible for the next year's awards, which was, by the way, the same year as Joe versus Kobashi. So. Yeah.
0: And, and even um, even uh, like the Torch and stuff, I feel like those guys we'll get to on the next episode where they give out their awards. I, I don't think they even had seen – by the time they did their awards, they hadn't seen this match yet. Right. So it's like I feel like in that sense when people go back and just read newsletters or read like best of lists, by the nature of how long it took Ring of Honor to get tapes out and by the nature of people trying to get like their best of lists right at the end of 2004 or the start of the next year – I feel like this match does not get the credit it deserves because of that, probably. Where although, the second although,
1: match, although also Meltzer did not give it as high of a rating, which obviously no, influences his list, his readers.
0: He gave it four and a quarter, yeah, he, uh, which we can get to in a minute. And Matt, I, I want to ask you, my one other problem, and it's a minor problem, honestly, because I'm giving this match five stars and saying it's the best match we've watched so far um, – I thought the 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 first steamboat spot, the one where he catches Punk's hand wiggling, I thought that even though I love the significance of it, like I lo- like how I mentioned, I love how it kind of wraps up that storyline. I do think it's kind of a bad spot in the sense that Punk's arm did really go down three times. So should it really matter if like ten seconds later his hand twitches? Pit- and also, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say his fingers don't really start wiggling till till Steamboat says they're wiggling. Like that's also.
1: I think it depends on your interpretation of that rule. Is the match stopped because the guy's arm drops three times, or is the match stopped because the guy is unconscious? You know, like, and if, if you interpret it as the guy's unconscious, well then he's not unconscious, so it doesn't matter how many times his arm dropped. You know, it's it, that's never been super clear anyway in the history of wrestling, really. So I think it's a I think it's fair
0: game. Like you were talking about stuff being too cute. That was the one moment where I felt like this is kind of really cool, but part of me was like, Uh, eh, you're 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 getting close to the edge here. You La- know? Laying, you're, it, you're- laying
1: it on a little bit sick.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was the one time I kind of got to that feeling I think you probably had a couple times. But um Yeah, yeah. Um really great match i'm just going through my notes before we get to the reaction the, to the and, oh, and, go on.
1: and by the way you already have a little listeners you already have a little bit of spoiler for our year-end awards on the next show you know that um trevor and i are going to have different winners
0: <laughs> no it's going to be obviously it's going to be um jerk jackson trinacid. versus
1: trinacid yeah
0: yeah yeah it's, it's going to be something on final battle obviously we got to keep the suspense going to be uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> i mean just quickly oh okay matt this is the obviously the biggest point we did not talk about. Did you notice that at one point at ringside, um, a little kid at ringside, when they're brawling at ringside, wants Joe to beat up Punk with his bottle of Pepsi? He's like, hit him with this. Hit him with Pepsi. His- I, oh,
1: yes. I remember. He was also holding that Pepsi bottle up at Punk when Punk was doing his entrance, and it felt like Punk didn't look at him, and maybe the kid was just mad that Punk didn't acknowledge the Pepsi.
0: <laughs> oh, God. um, so, um, I just, oh, also punk, great bleeder. I thought the commentary for this match was overrated. I, I, uh, some people liked the commentary. I re I thought, um, Joe punk too was naughty and Gabe's best work as a team. I thought they oversold stuff here, even though this match was great. I thought they went over the top. I felt like they didn't pick up on the significance of like the blood stopping punk from doing headlocks as, as much as they should have. They didn't really directly comment on that element and i also thought like you mentioned gabe saying that punk might have suffered brain damage or died at the choke at the end like that talk about laying it on too thick like come on
1: not necessary in that moment it was dramatic enough without that
0: yeah but anyway so um Next up, we'll go to some thoughts from – we've been referring to this on the last two matches they had, the The famous Joe Punk shoot interview, which if you can hunt down a copy of this, it's obviously not through official channels anymore. It's out of print, but it's a great – DVD so here's their thoughts although I just saw
1: Gabe on Twitter saying that he has extra copies of all of his ROH DVDs and is wondering if there's a market for selling them so you could maybe just buy it from Gabe
0: (laughs) (laughs) don't bug Gabe too much but maybe you can get a copy there so they got asked a lot of questions about this match obviously uh Joe said they were a lot more confident going into the third match than the second they thought what wherever it was going whatever it was going to go it was going to go and it was going to be pretty good. Um, Joe said there was high expectations, but not a lot of personal pressure. Uh, Punk said they agree that they weren't going to try and top the second match because they didn't think that they could. They just wanted to tell the original story they had in mind from the first match. Cause remember, I think we kind of figure out going back that it was really supposed to just be a two match series. That second one hour draw, which ironically is a lot of people's favorites was because they needed a match to make up for Steve Creno having to cancel a match with Joe Punk said he was worried about the crowd reaction because he says sarcastically, because Jersey loves me. And I I will say Punk's been getting pure babyface reactions on all the cities lately except Jersey. There's noticeably like half the crowd at least does not like Punk in New Jersey. Um Punk says the no time limit stipulation for the third match was his idea. The idea from the onset was to get everyone expecting this super long match and then not give it to them. He says the third match was 30 minutes, but here's a really interesting point, Matt. Punk says they actually only were planning on going 20. He, they said they just wanted to go nuts right from the bell and just be like a sprint that completely subverted expectations. But I guess, you know, sometimes matches go longer than you intend. It went 31, but they actually only wanted to go 20. Um Punk's is a big part of the story was the blood, you know, the, the idea that the blood prevents Punk going from going 60 minutes. That was a conscious storytelling decision. Uh, Punk says Ricky Steamboat came up with the idea of Joe putting his feet on the ropes. He says right after Steamboat left backstage after telling them both that like, you know, this is I think you guys should try this. They, he says me and Joe both looked at each other and just went, that's a stupid idea. You know, you wouldn't do that. And then they both separated for a couple of minutes to like put on their gear. And when they both came back together, they had both thought about individually and were both like, actually, that's a genius idea. We should do that. And which is you know the reaction I had to the, watching that and then it's the, um,
1: Steamboat's greatest contribution to Ring of Honor
0: that, that seriously is I think that I mean maybe there's something we're not aware of but at least of the things we know that's one of my favorite spots in wrestling and yeah and again that's a great some that's a great spot in this another point of why I think this these matches are so much better if you know the history because if a lot of other wrestlers do that. You just go, oh, the guy put his feet on the ropes. What's the big deal? Like, I see a million wrestlers do that. It's only a crazy cool spot if you know that Joe never has done that and never – you you don't think he ever would. Like, it was a ben
1: very – this was an extremely cerebral match in terms of how they put it together. They put, they put so
0: much thought into this. That's one of those things. Right a few days before we did record, – we're recording this episode, a few days before, a little – a uh, quote from Dave Meltzer on a message where went on about how Kenny Omega put more thought into his matches than anybody. In, I was you know. thinking,
1: I was thinking the same thing when I said that just now.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I'm glad you led me right into it. I'm glad you, you, you put the bait right on for me and I bit it like, you know, but um, yeah. And I'm not saying Kenny Omega is a fantastic wrestler, but like, these guys put as much thought into this match and this series as I've seen anyone put any into any match. And to the point where even you are like, there might be almost too much thought, you know, there might be a little up their own asses, which I I think other people have thought that too. Like, so, but whether you love this match or just think it's great or think it's overrated, like the idea that, Kenny Omega invent you know he treats wrestling like a movie and no one's thought about matches this deeply this match is full of meaning and so so many things they do have like real like layers of depth and reference things that happened months or years earlier like just yeah
1: you want to talk about psychology like come on
0: (laughs) yeah and um So going back to the review, Joe says Steamboat had a lot of input in the whole finishing sequence. He says from the first choke on, Steamboat had a lot of input into the whole sequence to happen. So more than just that one spot. Joe and Punk said they were working on the match in the back and they didn't know what to do for the finish, and Steamboat came up with the idea of stopping the of uh, having the timekeeper of, of him stopping the timekeeper from calling the match, and also the idea of Joe continuing to reapply the choke at the very end. Uh, Joe says they were looking for elements in the match to show how Joe wanted to retain the belt at all costs. And Steenbolt then asked Joe, them to meet him earlier in the night. And he asked Joe then, have you ever been a heel in Ring of Honor before? And when Joe said no, in fact, Joe in the shooter goes, well, no, I've never really developed my character that much. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, Joe sort of was heelish at points early on. But yes, yeah. I, get, I get his point.
0: And so um, Joe, Joe says once he told them no – then Steamboat said, well, how about you try putting your feet on the ropes for this match? And then Joe thought Steamboat was a crazy old man at first, but like Punk said earlier, about five minutes later, they both realized it was the most brilliant idea that they had ever heard. Uh, Punk says there's no in-between. You either love him or hate him, and New Jersey hates him. Punk says he wanted to come up with ways to make it look like he was going to win, to give the New Jersey fans heart attacks and, quote, kill them. So... um <laughs> Joe points out there was a fan in the front row who was – and I didn't see this fan, so maybe it was not on camera. But he says it, he was super vocal all match in support of Joe. And he says, right after I did the foot on the rope spot, I looked at the fan and we sh- we like locked eyes and shared eye contact. And he says the fan looked at me as if I had just shot his dog. And Joe said that moment's like what he lives for in wrestling. And he says he actually used that as like almost like an actor's motivation for the rest of the match that like he was a bad guy willing to do anything to win. Um, Joe says they wanted for one match, no matter how hardcore a fan you are, no matter how many newsletters you read to have fans lose themselves in the match. And he thinks they did that in all three matches, but especially in the third match's ending sequence. Uh, Punk says that after the near fall for the first choke, where he kicks off, they do the Piper-Brett finish, and it's a near fall with the turnbuck. He kicks off the turnbuck calls while he's in the choke. He says, we create a few minutes where the fans didn't know who was going to win. And he says the entire three matches were building to those final few minutes. And I do think, like you were saying earlier, those final few minutes, they were buying into everything. So I think Punk's absolutely you know, right there. That in those few minutes, they created like... You know, it doesn't always happen in wrestling where the fans literally don't know when the match is going to end and who's going to win. Um, Punk says he wavers back and forth on if the second or third match was his favorite. He says, maybe the second was a better match structure and execution wise, but the third match is off the charts emotionally. Punk says the finish of those final mat- minutes of the third match is the biggest rush he's ever had in wrestling. Um Here's an interesting thing, Matt. The, the interviewer then, at, who wasn't Gabe for the shoot, then asked Punk if there was a finish Punk originally had in mind that Gabe said no to. Punk says he can't remember, and then Joe vaguely recalls that there was, but he can't remember what it was, and then I guess they tried to get a hold of Gabe during a break in the shoot, and they couldn't, but apparently there is a finish that Punk wanted to do for this match that was rejected by Gabe, so this was not the original finish. Um, the interview then asks if there was anything they'd have done different. Punk says he wouldn't have blown up in the match apparently he was uh, he, which you don't really notice although I guess he is selling a lot. Uh Joe says just technical stuff like he wouldn't have slipped coming off the top rope that's what you talked about earlier where he kind of caught Punk in the face with his knee and um Punk says he shouldn't have done the drop kick off the apron to the floor as he killed himself on that and Punk also said Joe kicked his shoulder out of the socket like I guess that's a no I forgot to mention too. Punk's shoulder came out of the sock, and he did not get it back in until the next day during this match. Um, When asked how they want their trilogy to be remembered, Punk says his whole objective was to get the Ring of Honor world title over as something people would die for. Punk says they were two young guys having three matches. They didn't have any business being as good as they were. He says he would refute people comparing them to Steamboat and Flair. He said those guys wrestled almost every day. We wrestle three, two or three times a week. So he's basically saying, you know, we're not the level of those guys. We don't have their experience. Joe says he wants fans to remember the matches fondly as some of their favorites. Joe says it's not the end of it. Neither of them are retired or in the WWE. He thinks there will be more from them down the line unfortunately joe there's not going to be any more from i mean you will face off in the same ring together but you're not having a singles match ever again and so that's their comments and next we'll go into finally matt the reaction from the newsletters and some live notes um mike johnson writes cm punk popped his shoulder out during the main event he popped it back in the next day and isn't expected to miss any ring time um, the observer wrote a lot of people were expecting both a title change and another 60 minute match. So they weren't ready for the finish, but was another great match with great reactions. It also hurt that Joe and punk didn't even get to the ring until 1140 PM. I heard someone else say midnight, but either way late. Yeah, well, punk was- the, the
1: idea that they weren't ready, like expecting a 60 minute match, maybe not being ready for the finish when it happened. No way. Is that true? Nobody was like watching that be like, Oh yeah, this match is going to go another half hour.
0: Like, like no way. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Whoever told that, Dave, like, is, is nuts because all those near falls at the end, even Punk and Joe would just have that quote talking about, they were buying into everything. They thought the finish could happen at any time. So the idea that the fans, a half an hour in, were thinking, oh, this is going to go another 30 minutes, like, there was no match in history that would have had, like, 40 minutes of near falls even <laughs> all Japan, like, no way. um. The PW Torch wrote that regarding the Punk Joe Three match on December fourth, Sapolsky calls it an incredible match. It was absolutely incredible. He tells the Torch, "I watched it as a fan with my friend in the bleachers of the Rex in the bleachers of the Rexplex, and everyone was glued to the action." His, friend, his cr- friend
1: was Gary Michael Capetta.
0: and going crazy at all the pinfalls and submission attempts it really was something special and i want to thank cm punk and samoa joe for giving me a match that i could watch in the bleachers and pop for like a fan i think the punk versus joe trilogy from 2004 with the matches at world title classic joe versus punk 2 and all-star extravaganza 2 will stand the test of time and be talked about for years and years to come gabe at least in this podcast you're totally right um (laughs) and then finally matt the main event for this before we wrap up the rest of the little interview bits of the show, long time listeners have, through the years have known we've had a uh, rocky relationship with Dave Meltzer's reviews of Ring of Honor matches, how he has this habit of um, kind of giving positive reviews while also comparing them to every other match under the sun and kind of giving them like these passive aggressive Positive reviews where he's like, well, this works in the indies, but it wouldn't work here. I think there was a show a few months ago where Dave did not do that. He, like, went the opposite direction where, like, Dave's finally learning. Matt, I feel like this is the payoff – fitting for a match that paid off so much. I feel like this is the ultimate payoff because we've been swerved, Matt. This is Dave Meltzer's review of Joe Punk 3. I saw the tape of the December 4th Joe versus CM Punk match from Elizabeth, New Jersey, and would give it four and a quarter stars. It was a little better than the first match, but I don't think it compared overall to the second match, which was as good a U.S. match as I've seen in years. He's, he Then he writes, I watched the Misawa Kobashi 2003 title match this week title change match this week and even out of its time context it blew away any match of 2004 to the point that i was amazed at what a different plane it was on what Joe Punk's, I, total
1: and totally unnecessary to put that in this review <laughs> <laughs> <Joe> <laughs> by the way Punk's, by the way as much as i love that last match there was a match that was much
0: better just so you know don't get too excited by the way for dave always saying that the five star scale was never a five star scale and it could have always gone to six or seven we just have a quote from him saying that Um, kobashi misawa for 2003 blew away any match in 2004 it was on a different plane including two
1: five-star matches
0: (laughs) exactly like what the fuck are you talking about um why didn't you give you know then by that standard you should be giving joe i mean i keep saying joe kobashi misawa kobashi like six stars you know that would make sense then but anyway joe punk free played a lot off the first two matches, particularly the second one, as they built similar spots and crossed up on them. Mark Nolte and Gabe Sapolsky did a great job explaining the strategy and added a lot to the story they were telling. For layout, in a sense it was better and it had a finish, although the 60-minute draw in the second match was an awesome finish and how it came out, and something that came across as really special. After watching a lot of 30-minute matches from Japan over the past two weeks, I thought from a layout standpoint, this was better. Sasaki Tenzon was harder hitting and felt more believable, and Tenzon Kawada looked like a war in the clips compared to Sasaki Tenzon, and Sugiera Sug-Sugiera Kanemaru was more exciting. As good as they were, Joe and, Joe and Punk, as they were in this match, would not make it in the WWE without greatly adapting their style. The stuff they do is too heavily tailored for a niche audience that likes long technical matches, and that's a tiny percentage of even the audience WWE still gets these days. Fully pushed for them to be signed, and, and Steamboat, now as an agent, also recommended both men, plus WWE is in the mode right now of looking to add a decent amount of talent. The impression I have is the higher-ups, and ultimately this is a Laurinaitis call, are skeptical because of their physical appearance, and the tide is against it happening. Joe gets away with being a tough guy in Ring of Honor because everyone else is so much smaller. But in WWE, to their audience, they'll see him as an average-sized guy who isn't in shape. Even even Rhino looks more powerful and is more explosive, and he's struggling just to stay on the radar these days. And Joe will have to get over in six-minute TV matches. Both are very good on Ring of Honor for Ring of Honor style on interviews, but Joe's current laid back, confident, Bachwinkle style isn't suited for a WWE undercard guy. Punk on interviews is good enough, but he's really cruiserweight size. Chavo Guerrero can talk and work and look where it's got, and look where it's gotten him since Eddie went single, and it's not just the company's fault because the company did try to push Chavo versus Kidman off something real, off as something real, and the fans didn't buy it at the house shows or on TV. Matt, there's so much I could say here. First off, how the fuck did that end with a Chavo Guerrero Kidman talk?
1: Well, how, do, how is he all- – compa- how is – okay. I, I mean even Chavo Guerrero would probably say it's absurd to compare him and CM Punk to each other on promos. Like he called CM Punk good enough. CM Punk is one of the best promos of the last 20 years. Like, and he was already at 2000 and, like, it's, like, that The he's, Raven stuff. Yeah, he you know, so undersells CM Punk's, like, personality here. The idea, they'd have to really adapt their style. Oh, you mean they're not going to have hour-long main events in WWE because that's <laughs> clearly the only kind of match these two guys can have? Like, this idea, like, everyone has to adapt their style. Why would these, like, what this concept that these super talented, versatile guys can't adapt their style is so ridiculous. Um, I do get that Joe had a look that might have been hard for WWE at the time, um, and Punk was not that big. But, like, Punk had charisma out the ass, and, like, his promo skills were, like, just top elite tier. And, you know, I mean, you saw Joe and TNA a few months later. Like, yeah, TNA and WWE are different. But Joe wasn't working a slow, technical style. He was working, like, fast-paced, hard-hitting, high-spot matches. Like, those wouldn't have gotten over in WWE. And just, obviously, in general, like, just the need for him to even go there in reviewing their matches, like, having to say that is just so stupid. Like, just, was the match good? Was it good for its audience? Did they do what they were trying to do? Was it really fun to watch? Like, that's all you need to say. You don't need to talk about how it would have played for a different audience that they wouldn't have done the same match for anyway
0: like, I, I I get Dave, like, I don't think Dave's being malicious but I think the problem is Dave and I think a lot of other people too they so often tie a like creative success with business success like you know it can't just be a great match you have to be like well it's a great it's one of the greatest matches of the year but it wouldn't work in WWE you know it, it, that, like could you imagine if like some like Rolling Stone reviewed like the first Ramones album in the 70s and they were like yeah this is like the greatest album we've heard in years and it's going to completely influence bands for decades to come But could they sell out Shea Stadium? Like, no. So, gotta dock them some points. It's like, no one, like, real reviews separate commercial success, viability from creative, like, Quality and this
1: also, oh, it, but also, like, even if you want to go there with business stuff, like for ROH's business, this match did business. Like, yeah, I'm sure it sold a lot of DVDs. Like, yes, it didn't do it, didn't draw them the same way, but like, this series of matches was good for ROH's business. Like, was ROH Joe kinda, Punk 2
0: So, yeah. sorry, I was gonna say, Joe Punk 2 was their best selling DVD, I think, until Joe versus Kabashi. So, think about it better than Muda's show, better than Liger's shows, you know?
1: Yeah, ROH's business was based on having great matches, like, that's what their business business was
0: yeah and it's just even like you know rhino looks more powerful and is more explosive and he's struggling to stay on the radar these days like just the idea that like well you know joe probably wouldn't do good in wwe because look at rhino like no nothing against rhino but come the fuck on really like yeah sorry no you go on i w-
1: I wonder when Dave really turns the corner on Samoa Joe and realizes, like, oh, this is, like, a top, top, top top-notch great wrestler as opposed to, like, well, you know, this guy's good in his world. You know, like, there is a point that comes at some point where he treats Danielson and Joe like they're really top wrestlers, but I think even all the way to when Danielson gets signed by WWE – in two thousand nine, he's still making comments about like how they he may or may not be able to hack it there because of style and stuff. Like, just it's my pet peeve of mine. Like, super talented people can adapt their style. Like, that's one of the things that makes them super
0: talented. You know what this reminds me of is how so many like Triple H used to do, always do that line where people would be like, "Why are all these indie guys in NXT for so long?" He's like, "Well, they have to learn like how to work to the hard cam," and people are like. Like really, it takes you years. Like like you, like you were saying, like talented people generally can adapt pretty quickly to situations like that. You know, right. like this idea that like Joe and Punk would be powerless to figure out how to like adapt to working at a, a TV match. It's just like yeah, they they just be like, oh, I'm lost. You know, what do I do now? I like, I can't do sixty. I can't wrestle then. You know, like. <laughs> w- w- but I will. I guess my last thing for this, I will say is even though we're being hard on Dave because he can be weird and annoying as hell sometimes, like the idea that Joe would never make it because he looks a certain way, that was a common belief by not just a lot of people in wrestling, but by, you know, a lot of fans at that time. I mean, I showed you a review today, Matt. I won't, you know, I won't shade the person because there are a lot of opinions, but there was a review from close to that time of this match where that person shits all over Joe and basically is talking about him being blown up when I don't think he was. And, you know, I'll, like basically I think a lot of people just look at Joe and they just go schlubby fat guy. His name is Samoa Joe. That's a dumb name. And they just wouldn't even give him a chance where I think Joe's a guy where, yes, the name at first sounds kind of dumb. Yes, yes. He looks like a chubby Samoan guy. And then, you know, in the vein of a lot, of, by the way, a lot of Samoans with that body type have been huge, big in wrestling. But I always say with Joe, like, if you watch Joe wrestle one match, you get it. Yeah, he, Yes, if you just look at a picture of Joe and see his name, you go, what? That guy's a big, the future? But if you watch him wrestle one time in a reasonable match, I think you understand.
1: The one thing I will say to D- in Dave's favor is it is true at the time that probably Joe and Punk – wouldn't have been really made it to the degree in WWE, but it's not because of their ability to adapt. It's because WWE wouldn't let them, right? Like they never, they didn't take Samoa Joe when he was in his prime. You know, they, 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 they chose not to. And Joe obviously chose to stay in TNA with punk. It took them years to really do what they needed to with punk. And the only reason he got a chance in the first place was because Paul Heyman was there. So it's like, yes, WWE's shitty way of picking talent, um, at the time would have held them back but certainly nothing about their abilities would have held them back
0: yeah and um like i don't know what joe could have done in wwe but like he could have what, what's to stop him from having the career that umanga had you know
1: no joe if, if they wanted to make joe a star joe would have been a top star in wwe like i'm convinced of that um but they didn't so he wasn't
0: <laughs> Yeah, so I guess we'll we'll start to wrap up. We still have a few little things here. After the match, Joe poses with the belt as Punk's students help him recover. I guess we should mention they try to give this a more Japan feel where some of Punk's students were his ring boys at ringside and uh, Joe had Jay Lethal with him, which I think he also had in the last Punk match. Um, Steve Ball enters the ring and he whispers something to Punk. Joe gets on the mic and he tells Punk to look at him. Joe says, people may not like his methods... But this is the most important belt in the world, and it belongs to him, and he will do whatever it takes, whatever the cost, whatever that needs to be done to keep it his belt. Joe gets a mixture of booze and cheers for this. Uh, Joe says the fact is that the real reason the belt means anything, though, is because of guys like Punk who will do whatever it takes to try and win it from Joe. Joe extends his hand and says it was an honor. Joe Punk shakes it. Joe says he does it doesn't matter if next up is Austin Aries, Nigel McGuinness or John Walters. He says low key's time will come too. Joe says most of all he's here to address someone that called him out when he wasn't here, so he's returning the favor. He screams out Mick Foley's name and he says to to meet him a real wrestler in a real wrestling company in front of real wrestling fans and then he'll have Joe's respect. Joe ends by saying the champ is leaving the building and thought this was a pretty fantastic promo from Joe here,
1: yeah, good stuff, and good that they you know they 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 allowed the rest of the fans to bask in the moment of the match, but they still
0: kept the ball moving forward, yeah. And then we cut to Sugar Sean Price backstage with Becky, the Becky Bayless side of Special K, which is her Angel Dustin Dixie. They're pissed their friends turned on them for Lacey. Becky says they did their share of partying, but that bitch Lacey pisses her off. So it's time to show her what Becky is about. Dixie wants to teach the rest of Special K a lesson for turning their backs on friends. Uh, cut I, I, I have to say,
1: I, I enjoyed Becky saying, you know, when, when that, when, when Lacey, when she beat me up and gave me a DDT, that pissed me off. Like, just, <laughs> just, you like, oh, you, oh, did it now.
0: Uh, cut to Moff and Whitmer chilling in a concession area right by the soda machine, uh, near the sink. Gabe tells them, Alice in Danger signed them to a fight without honor against the Carnage crew. They're both into it. And Moth notes a fight without honor hasn't been done in a year. Moff says all four men aren't going to come out of it the same, but Moth and Whitmer will come out of it on top. Moff warns Allison Danger that she's messing with their pockets and their careers, and they are very close to doing something real, real bad to her. Um, don't know if you have any thoughts on that little promo. Nope. And then finally, final segment, elsewhere backstage, Gary Michael Capetta is there with Austin Aries, whose chest is all marked up from the low-key match. Uh, Gary informs Ares that because Loki wouldn't go for the five extra minutes tonight, Ares will be the one that gets the next Ring of Honor World title shot. Ares has a big goofy smile on his face for a lot of this promo. Kind of looks like a goober. Uh Aries says that Key's attempt to screw the fans only screwed himself. Aries says that no one, that there's no one that is going to stand in his way of becoming the Ring of Honor World Champ, and he means nobody, which I guess maybe a little hint about what's to come with Alex Shelley. And then um That's the show the observer wrote crowd wasn't into the first half of the show, but largely was into the latter half and super into punk versus Joe. Matt, this is one of those shows where it's so such a long show where it's almost hard for me to remember, like how to sum up like my thoughts of the show because I was like, oh, yeah, that was part of the show, too. But. What did you think about the show as a whole? Because obviously, you know, one match looms large on it, but a lot of shit happened on this show.
1: Yeah, you know what? I, I, the, you know, I was like, I was excited for the show, but also kind of dreading it in the sense of like, oh God, it's so long. Um,. But I have to say, it was I thought it was a great show. Like, It wasn't con- super consistent the whole way through, but there was so much good stuff on it. And it had you know, the, the, the Heenan and, and Cornette stuff, and it was like, so they had the comedy and entertainment. It had a bunch of good wrestling matches. The main event was so spectacular. It's like Gabe threw everything at the show, and I think it paid off. Um, I didn't find that the crowd was so dead for the first half, obviously for some stuff, but... For I'd say like they were this was a hotter crowd altogether than at the last Rexplex show or the one before that. Obviously they weren't up for anything as much as they were excited for Liger, but in general they were really into a lot of the stuff. I I have to think about it obviously, and I have until the next show to think about it. But I think this might have been overall the best card of the year um for ROH I am I'm, I'm trying to think of which one is a bit like there's no obvious gri- like best show of the year to me there's, yeah there's a lot of like top match candidates but like there's a lot of good shows um there's no one show that stands out as like spectacularly great but I think this one is pretty close to great show and the main event was just so 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 good um that it's it's definitely going to be in consideration for my show of the year let's put it that way
0: because of just its length it's not as tight as maybe some other shows this year and you know some of the undercard stuff is just okay but the highs are so high and also i feel like the show you know ring of honor like a lot of wrestling companies or a lot of wrestling period you know things end but it always feels like something else has to come up and in this show you definitely had some of that but this show felt like the closest ring of honor gets to a wrestlemania in recent times in the sense of like the Aries, the end of, I mean, the end of Joe Punk felt like the end of something huge, you know?
1: Right, like we've right. seen like
0: the end of an era.
1: 2003 had the first year anniversary that clearly felt like a big show and it had Death Before Dishonor, the first one, which felt like a huge show. This year, those Death Before Dishonors and Glory by Honors, they didn't really feel like particularly big shows. They were good, but they didn't feel big. This was one of the few shows of the year, especially since the big split that really felt big in terms of like matches that were built up to, uh, closure, um, payoff, and just like really top notch work in some of the matches. So yeah, I, I agree with you there.
0: And kind of going full circle from something you said much earlier in the show how a lot of Ring of Honor's big shows were big because you know, you talked about like the Jeff Hardy show or the WrestleMania Weekend show or the Liger Show or, you know, Muta Muda Show, where a lot of their shows are big because of some like foreign stuff i mean outside star or some special circumstance like this was a show that obviously with bobby heenan had a big like special guest but this show at the end of it it felt like it was a huge show because of a ring of honor storyline paying off between two ring of honor stars like which again kind of gave it a, a real special feel i felt like totally um so that ends the show what a show long show but I guess we christened the new feeds with a very long, very eventful, very big, notable show. If you want to contact us, um, on Twitter, I'm at Trevor Dame, D a M as in mother E at mayor M G F for Matt. Um, through the years at gmail.com is our email address. That's T-H-R-O-H for through. We have a full, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling onlycom plugs forum if you want to talk on the message board. Uh, we'll, obviously we're available on so many podcast feeds on YouTube starting soon. You know, we've got our first couple of old episodes on YouTube. So much stuff. You know, so many ways to contact us. I have a dumb Patreon even at www.patreon.com slash M-E-C-C-A, M-E-C-C-A, Mecca Mecca. It's dumb. Probably shouldn't subscribe to it. But most of all, next episode, folks, this – if you thought this was huge – Holy shit. Next episode is Final Battle 2004. And you if you've been a long-time listener, you know not only our, our Final Battle episodes, just episodes where we cover Final Battle, which are usually big shows. We also, at the end of that, then do a whole other section where we do year-end awards. We sum up our thoughts on the year. We look over, like, the couple major newsletters, what awards they – how they, what they gave out to Ring of Honor. And just typically some of our biggest shows of each year. And, oh, yeah some Joe's legendary year plus title reign, it ends. So, uh, oh yeah, that happens too. So, that's the next episode, Matt. That's gonna be. Holy shit, it's. I'm exhausted after this episode, and I think that episode's gonna be just as huge and. It'll also notable. be a
1: milestone for us because we'll have finished 2004. <laughs>
0: Yes, and then we'll start 2005, Matt, which is more shows. It's a longer year than this. It's just yes. more stuff, more notable stuff, like maybe the most notable year. It just – it never ends, folks. So
1: No, I mean geez. literally at our pace, this show is going <laughs> to go. As long as we survive this show, which obviously is a pretty big if given the world right now. <laughs> but, but assuming that happens, this show will we'll, we'll be there for you for, for a long time to come.
0: So, you know, just stay inside. It's safer for a variety of reasons and uh, look forward to the shows. And again, now you have a nice feed with 54 episodes of, you know, probably is like you could listen to a week without sleep and just listen to us. And what a week that would be. But until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. I have never paid for sex.